On the well, show, I know, Al. It's, I know. It's been... I know. Uh, uh, Al, thank you for being here today. Um, you took some time out of your busy schedule from pounding, cracking words. open a cold one there, Al. Yeah, yeah. I'm drinking some diet coke. Give, leave me with some peace. You're not drinking a Dunkachino? Oh, I guess uh, you got burnt out. Of Those that. don't come in cans, Jim. I've been asking them, but they keep That's saying true. no. That's true. You're right. To have Al Pacino on the show is quite the honor. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh ah. Uh. Mm, that's that's the noise I make when I drink Diet Coke. I'm just like <laughs> Ooh ah. Uh. It turns it turns you into Al. Yeah. Pretty much. I have my throat all the way in it. Apparently I have a great Nick Cage. I just discovered that's it. That's a great coke. This is, this is how you're gonna get fired up for, for Andy. I wanna take his face off. I could eat a peach yeah. for hours. There it is. I could eat a peach for hours. I don't know. I, I don't think we should do this show. I think it should just be this. I think it should just be Clay's imitation. Can anyone do a Denzel? No. No. Uh, like, no, oh, no, that's no nobody right. can, no, nobody no, can do that. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. King Kong ain't got shit on me. Uh, I'm out, Pacino. I can't always be yelling. It hurts my throat. <laughs> Alan Edibles. That's what we need. Oh, Ooh, I'm high as a cat right now. Ooh, uh, <laughs> ooh, uh, ooh, uh. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Directors Club. I am your host, Jim Laskowski, and uh, with us today, oh, oh I, I know you thought Al Pacino was here, but I got, I guess, I got a couple of dudes that are even more exciting than Al Pacino, in my opinion. They're two of my new favorite podcasters, hosts of a great new show called Exit Through the 2010s. They are spirited, thoughtful, intelligent. Please welcome to the show, Clay Williams and Jack Draper. Woo! I like that. Uh, yeah, that was, I'm a spirited person. <laughs> um, thank you for having us, Jim. Yeah, every time I listen to your show, I feel like I'm spirited away. Oh. oh we can't but that's not, that from the, that's not from the 2010s. I know, yeah, wrong yeah, decade, yeah, right, but right. Oops. we'll take it, we'll take it. I appreciate um, the pun. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm here for. Hey, listen, listen, you are wind rising with us. That's more. Okay. All right. Now you do have to. That's, okay. That's now I do have to leave. I, I was, yeah, I was, I was assured there would be no bad puns. That first pun was okay. good, but I was assured there'd be no bad ones. Hey, listen, bad, listen, so. this is like, I just want to make things clear. Cause for people that don't know, exiting through the 2010s, uh, myself and clay, clay brings impressions. And I, I just don't have the great, the greatest mind for comedy and will make bad jokes um, but yeah, we just, we, we are a podcast that is going through, uh, each film from the, the 2010s and, and, uh, we'll have each guest choose the film that stuck with them most from the, the decade and just see like what stuck with everybody and sort of like 
see how it's aged, and yeah, we've, we're having a great time. And once in a while, you have your neighbor Totoro show up on the show. <laughs> so We're recording from a castle in the sky. Yes, you got it, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. it's a moving castle at that. Oh! Yeah, I, I think we just, you know what, we should just do Miyazaki for this episode right, instead. Right, right. I, I would, hey, listen, I would, I would love that. Yeah. Someone must have done him at some point, right? Yes. Yes. And that, a lot of the times I'll say like, well, that was about a decade ago <laughs> with, with like a different host or something. But it's yeah. just funny to think like how this show is just all over the place. And I kind of love it for that. Like, See, you just don't know what you're going to get. I do think that's a part of my issue, too, that I'll go through your recent episodes, but then you'll like make a reference to like episodes from years ago and it's like how long has this pod been going on but i think that's a part of me that i've only gone through like the 2020 episodes and and since uh, oh sure no i i I understand that and if you went back it's a completely different show and we didn't know what we were doing or Mm -hmm. there are a lot more detours and digressions and weird stuff so our our podcast you're literally describing yeah. me and Jack's podcast <laughs> digressions, and we have no idea. That's what, what we're I doing. love about it. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. does feel like that's how I started out. Aww. Aww. Yeah. No, it's yeah. it's it's just a. I, I will openly admit, and I think most people that subscribe also know, it's just it's just all over the place, and it's kind of what makes it interesting because. Most shows do follow a set structure. It comes out on this particular day. You kind of know the format. You kind of know what to expect. Me, it's basically like whatever the guests bring to the show. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, we're I, of the same mindset. Yes, yeah, definitely. I like that approach. I really do. And I do have another guest co-host by the name of Bill Ackerman, who's incredibly intelligent and one of the best cinephiles I know. And he does something completely different with my show or with this show, I should say. And he's going to eventually be putting out like a five part episode on Jean-Luc Godard with like, I don't know, 20 interviews from different people, 20 different conversations like spliced together for like over the span of five episodes. So that excites me because I've never heard that approach. In a way that sounds like a podcast documentary. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a mini series basically. It's just like, but it almost feels experimental in the way that Godard was experimental. Mm. So <laughs> it oh almost fits. Yeah. No, that's, that's a monumental effort um, that I uh, recently caught up with the uh, Joan McGuinn silver episode and Yay. he was teasing that project. And that sounds like something that you want someone to do, but thinking about someone actually piecing it together, it's, it's like really like kind of, wild that 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 is coming but yet the fact that someone is doing it um makes it so that really you'll see the entire life and filmography really like come together because like you could watch the movies but like once you hear people talk about him and like some you know personal info i'm sure it's like like paints a bigger picture of godard um but yeah i guess just like circle back to what we said about the guests, it's like, that's all. Yeah. I completely agree that it's like, I think of it as more honestly, sometimes the guest pod than it is myself and clay. Cause we are there every episode. Like people can always see us and hear us have our thoughts, but th- it's not going to be the same for the guests. Um, yeah, and definitely. we just, you know, we want to have them, uh, have, have their time for, for as much as possible and get their, get their thoughts out. Cause it's like, they chose their, their film, 
from the decade for a reason and and what it means to them and and uh, we'll get some unexpected like vulnerability uh, oftentimes from that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be this. I mean, some people do have outlines and like share a Google Doc of here's what to expect. Here's all the bullet points. And on one hand, that's good for structure and, you know, creating expectations for the guests so they know what to, you know, take notes on or whatever. But I'm more like, let's just have a conversation. Let's just see what happens. Let's yeah. make it organic, you know? Or, or we Organic is the perfect word that I strive the podcasts to be. I'm always looking at for looking for it to be organic. And that, you know, and that comes with the jokes and the asides and the random, you know, uh outbursts from me, the rants once in a while. Like I the it, impressions. It's the stuff that kind of right, of course. It it comes to me like in that in those moments. It's not like I have a planned rant. Sometimes I'm like, oh I want to talk talk about this, but I let the like emotions carry me through. And that to me is my process as someone who does podcasts. Um, but I also, I pride the podcast on having this almost interview format as well. I mean, with new guests, we like to ask what their relationship with movies are, how it started, who was their, who are their inspirations and how was their journey? And I like to also just sometimes ask the logistics, like, did you, you like, what, what theater would you go to? Um, what, did your parents introduce you to X films or whatever, or like, you know, these films. Um, and I think that interview format while also covering a movie, I don't know, it really works. And it's also, I think a reason that comfortability, but also knowing that getting to know that other person is the reason why we've also made friends from that, from the podcast, because yeah, that's how I feel too. A really organic conversation. We're like, Oh cool. We can talk later about some of these things as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to know your superhero origin stories, uh, Clay. I do want to know what what was the gateway movie for you, or what made you fall in love with this art form in particular. It's so funny you ask that because we ask that again with any new guest, and I always I'm always impressed by the variety of answers and also how like almost like storybook they can be. Mm. Unfortunately for me, it's. I think I've just been around movies all my life. I, I'm a, I'm a. I was a latchkey kid, single mom, no brothers, no sisters, and so I was. I, I was raised by television. Um, and for better and for worse, and so of course, like I loved Pixar when I was young, and I would watch all these animated um, TV shows and movies. But then, yeah, and then. I started just watching random stuff on cable a lot. I was like one of my favorite films when I was like 11 or 12 was Kelly's heroes, this random Clint Eastwood film, because I just caught it on AMC. I think it was AMC. Um, when they were playing, you know, they, when they would play old movie, um, you know, war movies for a war marathon or whatever. And I remember seeing it for the first time, like during Christmas or whatever, and being like, this is just a really fun time. And also made me realize that I'm, I wasn't one of those kids who was like, oh, it's from the seventies. Ew. It's so old. Um, <laughs> I don't I was, watch black and white movies. And- <laughs> right. Right. It allowed <laughs> me to kind of be more comfortable with that kind of stuff, but it really just started happening 
when I think I was 15, 14, uh, I, I forget what came first was my interest in the movies or the, you or like getting more involved, interested in YouTube criticism and stuff and like mm, YouTube yeah. punditry. Um, which it's so funny cause now I kind of detest it for, I mean, not all, I, there's a lot of great YouTuber uh, film YouTubers we've had on like people who do video essays and like really long and intelligent dissections of film. Um, and we've had them on the podcast and, mm-hmm. you know, and those people are super talented, mm-hmm. but the punditry and like the 10 minute review stuff I've completely divorced myself from because yeah, I just find it to be a yeah. little bit hollow. But mm-hmm. back then it was just, it was everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it made me discover what movies were, what movies to watch. I watched Pulp Fiction because of that. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a great movie. Um, I know about Mad Max Fury Road before it comes out. And I see that in theaters and that blows my mind. I, it tells me that, oh, I need to watch Moonlight. I need to watch Whiplash in theaters because they're getting great reviews or whatever. And that's kind of that's what started it. And then as I grow, and when my tastes start to grow, and that's also the time when I'm still like, the MCU is the height of, you know, the movie going experience or whatever. Um, And as I keep going, growing older, and when me and Jack meet, probably in 2016-ish, maybe a year before that. Too long. We've been too long. Yeah, too long. Um, And he comes, and and obviously I'll let Jack kind of fill in where his interests came from. But he has a he had a more like independent director driven, um, uh, like old more classic film um, expertise than I did. And so he exposes me to stuff, and then I then I look, then I start searching for more of that kind of stuff, and I get become more aware of it. Um, And so it all kind of just. And it's just evolved so much. My taste has evolved so much since then. It's like going back and forth, like going back and forth between like, oh, I just want to watch like what's considered the great movies to I want to watch an airplane or like an airport paperback uh, trash (laughs) kind of adaptation. Give me all of the fucking 90 minute thrillers that kind of have make no sense and have bizarre politics, but has a, has a, a middle-aged man with a gun trying to figure some stuff out. Like whatever that those are. The, so it's kind of, it's morphed into this very bizarre thing that I'm still don't really understand, but it's evolved so much since then. But yeah, there, it, there wasn't that one movie. I mean, the dark Knight, Pulp Fiction, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Those were like, like movies that, that I, I remember that like kind of changed some stuff into how I view things and how I was like, Oh man, I love that. I really want to watch that again. And how those were like my movies or whatever. But yeah, but since then it's completely evolved, but that, yeah, that's basically how I started to get into film. And off that point, I remember um, like 2014 to 2018, my high school years being like the key. And once I really started to love uh, hearing directors talk about their work, not just that, but talk about other people's work, that was exactly the the tree that you're talking about. And that's what I really like to push onto others because directors, as closed off as they may be sometimes, like they are like, like don't, you know, 
as much as as bored as they may sound talking about their own work, they'll get um they'll get you onto something else that will be great, like the Safdie brothers talking about John Cassavetes. Who is that? And then like I I go out and check out that work. I, like an example I bring up all the time on exiting, like Barry Jenkins talking about Claire Denis. Who is that? And then I go and check out her. Um yeah, I remember uh for myself, like my granddad, uh my granddad who um showed me like like he was he was all he wasn't like a like a like a mood like he really emphasized certain things. But I wouldn't say he like had like a breadth of knowledge. He was definitely like an appreciator more than an enthusiast. Um but like he showed me he showed me Alien. He showed me Jaws. He showed like sort of like the text, like the the bullet points uh, that you're supposed to see, and that that was like big an impression, um, and a big impression for me to like really remember those and and carry through it to like when I did see like Blade Runner in high school. Like I remember like oh a pa like that my granddad and I seeing Alien like that that's the same guy right. But in theaters, um, and I mentioned this on our episodes, that it was really two occasions. Uh, Clay and I share Mad Max Fury Road as being a very formative uh, screening. And um, Interstellar was one. That I that was my first Chris Nolan in theaters. Hmm. Um, my did dad you see and I had... Did IMAX? Did you see I IMAX? I did. Oh. Um, and it just like kind of took my breath away and melted, melted me. Um, And I was like with some friends and my sister and like had no, and I like kind of knew it was a space movie, but didn't really know like how profound it was going to be. And like, you know, it's definitely flawed, but it was really something else uh, at the time. And really like 2014, 2015, 2016, I have a lot of nostalgia for those years, just like how invested I was in seeing so much and like, paying attention i felt i felt really part of something because like i wasn't really like into sports as a kid like i wasn't part of a team or anything i didn't have like i didn't have like a franchise like i was too nerdy about um but really is like movies as a broad uh whole like that was really like what i was trying to get attached to and then like clay mentioned like um trying to like compartmentalize trying to just watch anything i could like directors or like following film festivals, what's tr- what I should be paying attention to? Like, like trying to like pay attention to American Honey. Like, what is that? Like, that's that's very popular right now. Or, you know, um, and like yeah, some very formative um, times in those years I mentioned. Like, I'll never forget like seeing Twin Peaks: The Return with a group huh. of like with some high school friends. Right. But I, I don't think I've ever like in 2014 before that, I never had like many people that were movie nerds in my life. It was just more me trying to see what's out there. Um, we just had the internet, you know? And, um, yeah, like clay, uh, coming up in this time of YouTube film criticism, um, the time of streaming when just I could go and see anything that was being talked about. Um, there were some things that like, I remember my dad uh, pushing against seeing, like he didn't want me to see like, and much De Palma or much 
Scorsese because like he wanted me to wait till I was older to really get it. Um, which is like, you know, yeah, you can have your own thoughts on that, but it's like, um, yeah, I I remember like there were just some things that really stuck. Like, I I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson was huge for me just like, cause on prom, on my prom night in high school, like my friends, uh, showed me boogie nights (laughs) and that was, that was really huge. Um, and Paul Thomas Anderson still my favorite director. Um, that was, that was really big. Oh, that's why um, we get along so well then. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. I thought there was something there. Um, yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I think that's it's so weird because it's like we really do ask everybody and we've had what, like over a hundred responses to this question. And it's and it's like not often that we get to think about this. And some of the responses are absolutely batshit insane. And some are like, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I've heard that <laughs> right. before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of sleeping through it. Yeah. Yeah. Like some will be like, yeah, I watched no, no, Nosferatu when I was like three mm-hmm. years old every night before <laughs> I went to bed. Yeah. And then there's one where I'm just like, yeah, I saw like seven and I'm like, movies are cool. <laughs> Right. It's like, okay, sure. Yeah. Like everyone sees seven and thinks movies are cool. Um, but you know, <laughs> I, just, I, think I, thought, I thought for a minute, somebody saw seven at the age of seven and I was like, <laughs> Oh no, it's a weird time for movies, but it's an interesting time to talk about the past and see what it's led to today. Now I suppose if the, if the 2010s were to, were to tell us anything, um, lots of technology will be incorporated into this, the contemporary set cinema that we'll see. Um, but I think min- as more minimal than, than we may expect, like AI won't contribute to movies. It'll contribute, but not as much as we say, like I think of the amount of cell phone commentary that, that it's in the 2010s movies or social media commentary. Like it's there, but not as much as we may think. Um, and I think it's just like we're in the like the um the 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 stage that we're just trying to figure out what it means while still trying to like still have our masters make movies that that they already want to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to think about how during the 2010s, people were like, well, soon all movies are going to be shot on iPhone, every single movie you watch. <laughs> And when you look back and we're at, you know, and what, we're 2023 now, it's just like, I mean, yeah, like some, but it, but that never really became much of a reality besides, uh, uh, Soderbergh, what was it? High Flying Bird and Unsane. And then it was, and was Kimmy shot on an iPhone? I don't think so. Mm, Yes. It was. It could be. It could be. We need need Mitchell. We need Mitchell Beaupre here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or they're they're coming in uh, right now. Um, but I agree um, that it's more. It became more of an experimental thing. But I mean that that does. But when it comes to, I think my thing with AI is I don't think it will ever take over the visual aspect of films. I'm worried about when it comes to the writing aspect. Yeah, yeah, especially. Um, now. And I think that's. And I think because I don't. Uh, there's nothing that will even come close to the what the visual eye can create in film. Um, but, and I'm not saying writing will either, but I think companies will have a lot easier, have a much easier time throwing that in. 
Um, uh, but you know, that's, that's why the writer strike is so important because they, you know, that this is a very important time, but you know, that's, I feel like that might be another podcast, but I, I just right. want to say one more thing about the, I, uh, you know, asking questions of what was your, what brought you into movies. I think it's also to bring back the Kevin Smith thing. It's also like a very, like a sociological kind of like, what point in culture were you at and how did that point of culture influence of what you like and Mm. how did like, what were the things that were culturally present that brought you into movies? But also it gives you an idea of a lot of people's like psychological makeup and their current taste today. Um, Just with the process and the, and the specific films that got you into it, but just with like, whether it was, you know, whether a genre was your first attachment or a director um, or an actor like ex- Denzel Washington or, you know, a movie star, you know, seriously, that's what my mom got into. Is like, I just want to watch, you know, freaking Antonio Banderas in movies, you know, or whoever. Right. Right. Yeah. Anything could be a gateway think, like that. I think, th- I think that really continues strong uh, into the internet age that, that there's then fandoms surrounding mm-hmm. some actors and then there's an actor that will work with an auteur or consistently work with auteurs and then that drives someone from an actor fandom into discovering a director and then you're just off from there um that's the you know that also comes and that's how i discovered carl franklin oh. who's carl franklin oh yeah i I knew that name sounded familiar. I'm just really honored to be included in, uh, you know, with all these great filmmakers and all these wonderful movies. There was no fear in Star City, Arkansas. No murder. No killers. Until now. There's violence we've ever seen. What's the story on this Star City thing? You think it'd be a wild goose chase if you went down there? Welcome to Star City, boys! For Chief Dale Dixon, it's the chance of a lifetime. Follow me! After 10 years of busting people, toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. These are dangerous people we're dealing with. Get your hands up! Last night, some folks killed a Texas State Trooper. Looks like they're headed our way, boys. Y'all have never seen Dale. It's exciting, boy. It's waiting on the bad guys we can't wait for Christmas. But his first shot at the big time. I think he looks at y'all like you're some kind of heroes. Well, we're... We're far from that. Might be his last. I thought maybe he was like your third host of the podcast because it just <laughs> God that would Clay be dope. and Jack and Carl. That's just a yeah. That's like a <laughs> good threesome. Well, I shouldn't say threesome. I would say I, I that would be. A, I mean, you can say threesome. Oh, okay, <laughs> that, that's the ripple I want. Um, but that would be a pleasure because seeing interviews with him, just oh. like the chillest like conversation ever. Like, wow, what a what a laid back presence. I'll say I just let's just replace the podcast with nothing but his interviews. I would I would be because <laughs> he's yeah better I than mean, us too. <laughs> he he's so articulate but also very chill and just like yeah I make movies I'm, I'm you know I, I'm pretty proud of him and stuff yeah mm-hmm. you know he's but he's very you know he's articulate and he tells good stories and yeah but he's not one of those with a huge ego which mm-hmm. I greatly appreciate yeah. he's not your Tarantino who's just like I am such a great mm-hmm. filmmaker you know who. You know? You know who he reminded me of in terms of just how they speak about their work is Danny Boyle. Mm. Um, because Danny Boyle is someone 
that is a collaborative, is selfless, really respects the art of acting, um, and just like comes at filmmaking with such an open eye that, um, you know, it's like Danny Boyle, I, I think is like in a weird limbo in between, um, like, at, like a, like a steady hand or an auteur, but like Franklin like really is like a, like a work for hire, right. But it just happened to, um, and it kind of reflects that in the way they talks about his work. Yeah. I, I don't think he got into movies as like, Oh, I'm obsessed with movies. You know, he just, I wouldn't say like just treated it as a job, but he sort of just fell into it and was like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. And I kind of mm-hmm. like it, you know, I mean, yeah. he certainly brought an enthusiasm to it, but also, you know, like a lot of great directors that started out, he, um, you know, originally worked with movie producer, director, Roger Corman, like, mm-hmm. like in the late eighties and made like a, a couple of like B grade movies. Uh, one of which I had tr- trouble tracking down because it was only released on VHS. It's a chase Jason Priestley, David Carradine vehicle called nowhere to run, not to be confused with the uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, but uh, the only versions of it I can find were horrible VHS rips in French because this movie happened to be huge in Canada and was released there in French. So uh, I don't know if anybody will ever uncover this movie unless they do have a VHS that they're willing to just upload somewhere. But Mm. I, I would say that like you said, um, Jack is that it is a total work for hire. Like it's not a passion project. It's not something I'm like, Oh, I'm so bummed that I couldn't find this, you know, uh, obscure Carl Franklin debut that he made because we all know his breakthrough movie mm-hmm. uh, and for and for good reason but he also befriended Jonathan Demme around this time as well who was also mm-hmm. working with Roger Corman Corbin. so yeah they all sort of just you know intermingled a little bit and uh, Demme would go on to go co-produce Devil in a Blue Dress but uh, I, I gotta say you know, as I'm hearing you talk and being, you know, a couple decades younger than me, the way you discovered movies with, with whether it's podcasts or through YouTube or just, you know, talking with friends or looking things up on the internet, uh, my experience of discovering movies was not just video stores, but Siskel and Ebert. Right. Because of course. Their, their TV show was on every week would really, you know, review the new releases. And when Carl Franklin appeared here in Chicago at the music box theater to show devil in a blue dress and one false move, he was so grateful for this city, mainly because of Siskel and Ebert being really championed. Yeah, no, they they both love this movie. And, you know, like they were the reason why people sought this movie out. Like they were really just like the, advertising campaign (laughs) because he initially went through a a particular studio. I think it's called IRS media and they kind of just went straight to video with most of their titles and just didn't want to make an effort to put this out in theaters, which is a crime. Um, I think it eventually got released in like three theaters and that would include Chicago, but really Ebert and yeah, 
was just kind of going off and saying, everybody needs to find this movie. Everybody needs to see it. He, he might've even said it like on, you know, your, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was Jay Leno or John. It probably was Johnny Carson. I don't know if he, I think he was still around, but he just championed this movie. Like you wouldn't believe. And so that's how I heard the title one false move, which I love what he's, what Ebert said in his review is that it begins as a crime story and ends as a human story. Because the, the the setup is like, yes, there's drug dealers on the run. There's going to be some sort of showdown or confrontation. But as this movie goes on, it really, I, I tend to use the expression a lot on this show, but it's tr- really true in this case. And it's a movie that sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I am so surprised by how invested I get in these characters when it is kind of like you're, I wouldn't say like a, a Red Rock West or that type of movie, but it's just it's just so highlighted by really strong characterization, even if it's like another sort of crime noir story. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of humanity and you care even about how things play out with the criminals themselves. You know, I just mm. I think everybody is doing their best in this movie, really. And it comes from a script from Billy Bob Thornton, who... Mm-hmm. This was another sort of big breakthrough for him as well. But I don't know. I go back to this movie, and I'm so glad it's coming out on Criterion. I can't wait to own it because it was one of those movies that, again, like it was hard to find a really good copy of. So um, I'm curious to hear what the two of you think of what I I think it might be still my favorite Carl Franklin movie. One false move. Mm. Yeah, um, this is what I like to think of as like the uh, the a simple plan part totally. two, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like same, I remember same two guys dis- in it. Yeah, I remember discovering like, and also such a great sense of place in both. Um, I think I discovered both of them around the same time um, because it's just like. Yeah, this one just really lingers with you. You you completely understand why Ebert was um, a huge cheerleader for for the movie. Um, like anyone could be the main focus of the film, even though this movie has like three main characters. Like anyone could be um, taking the center. And yeah, it's it's just about yeah, it's just these three dimensional characters that are sort of like trying to like get like do their best and they do what they're good at even though it's like they're trying to stay loyal to those they know they can um they can stay true to and especially like a little tragic when you get to Haxton's part of the story but then also Mm -hmm. Billy Bob's part of the story like like he is so evil, but yet it's like there is a bit of a, like a loneliness there um, mm-hmm. that I really saw this time around. Um, that that I I really re- I, I think I saw this in the pandemic. I want to say in lockdown. Um, I should specify. <laughs> um, and the, and it really left an impression on me. I remember it when uh, it's it's the convenience store sequence, especially, but the entire movie is. He's yeah, so good really, with suspense. He's really, just so good. Really at it. is, yeah. Frankly, um, has such a yeah. Ha- really has such a handle on tension, um, and yeah, I, I yeah. To think about 
this is this is like the perfect script you want as um, um, your breakthrough. Uh, it's a bit of like Blood Simple esque in that way. Oh, perfect summation. Yeah, I saw one false move. So this was after I watched Devil in a Blue Dress, and which we'll talk about later. Um, and I love Devil in the Blue Dress so much. And I heard he, of course, made another film and also has, like, race uh, in on its mind. Like, the film has race on its mind as well. And mm-hmm. it's another th- crime thriller-esque. I mean, not obviously not like a detective neo-noir, but definitely um, ha- deals with tension um, and kind of the, you know, grimy parts of humanity in a way. Um Besides that, and besides like knowing some of the actors in it, I didn't have too many expectations going in. Uh, it delivered exactly what I was expecting, but it also added this real like kind of, I don't want to say domestic element, but I mean, yeah, like this domestic um, conflict element that I wasn't expecting. And also how, and like it's depiction of small town mentality and how that can also like completely warp how you grow up mm-hmm. and what and like the both extremes of being completely stuck in that mentality and trying to escape it and the faults uh with both um and also i mean like like you guys mentioned the tension is ratcheted up to a million and so many different scenes um and the film it has so com- has, is so confident in in handling those moments that could be so easily undercutted by one bad directing decision. Um, but they're all, he's always walking on this tip or um, this, you know, uh, tightrope when it comes to those scenes. Uh, I find tension to be, you know, crafting tension in a film to be something that gets better with age. Uh, at least from what I've noticed, it usually, it's it only because I think you have more familiarity with the rhythms of a film and when to cut and where to put the camera in this very specific moment. Um, a lot of those, you know, there's this uh, in like Schrader's uh, White Sleeper, uh, like at the very end, like with the confrontation between Defoe. And I think Sarandon is also there that it kind of ends the film. You kind of, in those moments are in a lot of different Schrader films. And as he gets older in his film and he's becomes more of a mature filmmaker, you see those scenes echoed, but they also just get better. Even though that also the light sleeper is also that has a terrific scene as well. So to have this be such an early film in your career as a director um, obviously he had the Corman stuff, but still, uh, is really, really impressive. And I think he also handles the script beautifully and he is, and he has the perfect visual, um, dichotomy between, you know, LA and uh, what's the small town that they star city, Arkansas. Yeah. Arkansas. Yes, exactly. And he d- d- demonstrates those two key architectural differences and architectural and uh, cultural differences so vividly. It's one yeah. of the biggest interpret. It's one of the biggest um, 
things you receive from that film. It's one of your uh, instant reactions is that is how those different locations and environments are drawn out. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a completely stellar film and an, an incredibly impressive early work. Yeah. And it's just, you, you mentioned just like how he's able to, you know, capture the feeling of a certain environment and location like that is just something i notice every film you know it's just he he knows the city like it's almost like he's really done his research or he's lived in the town for Mm. a while to where he knows what it's actually like to be there and his films manage to capture that sense of place yeah no matter where it is and i'm kind of floored by that that yeah it's just like yeah, some random place like Star City, Arkansas. It does remind me of like, yeah, what the Coens do with a place like Fargo. It's just like you automatically mm-hmm. go, get a sense of like, this is exactly what it's like to live with these people in this community, in this yeah. town. And yeah, it's it's funny too, because I even thought of the uh, Fargo scene with the state trooper pulling them over. Mm-hmm. That happens here in One False Move, another really intense confrontation between a state trooper. Right. And some bad guys here that mm-hmm. uh, plays out unexpectedly, and mm-hmm. I, I and I think that's plays out the same way in Fargo and uh, and here, of course. But. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so it's clear that there's influences, you know, bleeding over to some degree. But I just I think the way he portrays violence is really interesting. It's never glamorous. It's ne- it doesn't linger in an exploitive way. And I think he even told uh, an inter- interviewer once that. He doesn't want people getting excited seeing how cool it can be t- mm-hmm. to see someone experience violence on screen. Like it shouldn't be how, you know, some <laughs> some exploitive films maybe someone like Corman would have gone on to produce early on. It shouldn't be like that. He he wants you to feel the emotional loss and the violation of humanity. And I think some of those early scenes with um, Michael Beach, I believe. He is so intense and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like what he's doing with a knife. And, and, and Franklin does this brilliant thing that I always say, play, it does play better in your head when he cuts away or he doesn't actually show you know, the actual violence. You hear it or you feel it or it's just, it's happening. And I think he makes these you know, smart, but kind of subtle choices. Again, like I tend to use this descriptor a lot for some filmmakers that aren't your De Palma or whatever, but he's not very showy. He's not like, it's not like, you know, crash zooms, whip pans, or it's not Wes Anderson or something where it's just like the camera's moving and tracking shots and, and dolly shots. And it's just, and fade ins and fade outs and montages. Mm hmm. Because he was, really cares about the characters in the story, he's yeah. prioritizing those things over. He just doesn't like, move uh, the camera all that much, or like. No, like, and that's that's what makes him an interesting director to talk about. Is that you can't like necessarily say, well, he's very stylish in this way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, Good, yeah, and and I mean, like, I know, I know for a while at least, I really knew him from the two '90s thrillers, but then to see what then comes after it. Um, is, is what makes him such a steady hand where it's like what comes after devil in a blue dress and one false move isn't anything that's 
like career ending, but it's certainly something that is like showing um, he doesn't have a stylish identity, but something that's just like that. That's just workmanlike. Um, and yeah. Which, which we can get there, but of course it's like, that's that, you know? Um, and then I, I also found that hearing you, Jim talk about, um, his sparing use of violence or, or like lack there or lack thereof, um, the, the untraditional sense, it's almost as if like, that's where his identity comes through. Cause there is moments in, um, uh, devil in a blue dress where you do find that as well, where it's like, this isn't, it's cool, but not like, not like style, not cinematic cool. Right. Um, and it's the, and, and it's like Corman taught him like the craft of filmmaking or like new tools of filmmaking, but then it's like, that's where he can subtly insert himself. Um, and just in how great of an actor's director he is, like, like I just I just think of Haxton in this perfor- in this performance, um, and it's just like yeah he's so stuck in Arkansas and it's like I, that really sticks with me too where it's like that scene when he's hearing uh, the two other cops talk about him behind his back and it's like right like it, it is this sense of like being humiliated but then um, he really understands like because like we say it's like it's almost as if Carl Franklin lived literally like bought an apartment here lived here and then got to communicate that sense onto paxton which which he then acts in those few seconds in that scene it's it's very impressive it's one of my favorite scenes to be honest Mm -hmm. because it's just it showcases such vulnerability not not just from paxton as an actor but what that character is feeling in that moment you start to feel that too um i mean that's what great movies do is they 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 somehow like transcend empathy and almost like they reach out and kind of go and grab your heart in a way and make you go, Oh man. And you, you almost like flash back in your own mind to like something similar that's happened to you, you know, like, Oh God, I remember that time in school when I was humiliated or whatever. And you just, you just, he just somehow gets it. Like he, 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 he doesn't shy away from, making that moment linger too. And like just slowly having the camera get closer and closer to Paxton as he's being, you know, destroyed in a way because he like, he was putting those guys on a pedestal and now Mm. it's being crashed right before his eyes. And he kind of goes, Oh, wait a minute. I'm, what am I, what am I thinking? This is, I am this town. This town is me and I'm not going to get out of it. Even if I have, you know, the ideas in my head that I could. It's too late. It's too late. Yeah, it's he, too late. He's yeah. too late. Yeah. Him and Fantasia, they all like, or um, was it Lyra is her uh, real name? Mm-hmm. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Lila, they yeah. reach the Lila. They reach. Yeah. They reach this fork in the road, and one decided to stay in town. <laughs> and one did one, and one wanted to ex- explore their dreams in Hollywood. Um, Speak, speaking see, of I speaking of character names, I just I forgot his name was Hurricane. It's like the like <laughs> most nonsensical reason for his name being Hurricane. Oh yeah, because he, yeah. he comes into a conversation or at a place like a hurricane, <laughs> right. and that's one of the best bits of com. And that's when and when you when you see when you see that character description, you're like. So did they write this for Paxton? Mm, did they right. adapt it when he came on? 
um, because it's like this is hand in glove. Who else yes. has to? Who would else would play a person who's a hurricane in a conversation besides Bill <laughs> fucking Paxton? <laughs> I can so think true. of there is. I did find a casting what if in the movie we'll talk about later, but uh, for now, I it's almost as if like the scene where he walks into the other police officers, like that's like the Paxton. Uh, um, like mannerisms being erased like in real time and Mm. then like you know correct me if i'm wrong but it's as if like then the movie morphs into something else because like i think it's a few scenes after when you realize like lila and hurricane have like a relationship outside of the case um or a past but i think i feel like it was around that time um yeah we we learned that pretty much yeah right after that scene yeah because mm-hmm. it's it's like once he d- discovers he sees a picture i think mm-hmm. uh because right, the right. security camera at the gas station caught them and he sees the picture and he goes her name's not fantasia it's lila and that's kind of mm-hmm. when we know that he knows her rather intimately probably <laughs> right right so. um and and that's what i really and and that's so cool that i we got to see from watching these five movies uh, within a, a, a short amount of time that, that that that's something that I noticed that it's like within like the five movies that it, there's a, there's a pivot that happens with all of them. Um, like, you know, there's a pivot that happens like with high crimes and out of time. And yeah, like, I, I don't know. I just tend to, um, it may but not it's be not like manipulative. Genre, but it's, it's like it's character not, based. No, no. Yes, you got it. It's character based. Exactly. That's what I think is amazing because you could easily write a screenplay that is, you know, just. <laughs> I always think of like Donald Kaufman's description of a script and like how it like the twist comes here and this is exactly why and, you know and just it's like a story about man out. and horse. Yes. <laughs> But that's it. Yeah. And that's what I think somehow this movie and that the same will hold true. Clay is my Donald Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say because because Clay. I want to I, I want to see what kind of script you two write together. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> Tonal with like mishmash of like characters and like I can talk about scripts. I can't write them. That's the thing. I can I can tell you I can tell you if your script sucks or is good, but I can't tell you if I can, but I can't write one. Don't don't yeah. I can't yeah. do that. You would have to clip Clay and I like a year cuz it would just be him like telling me it's trash or like 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 you know. It's uh Yeah, I just think like especially as the the first two movies that we're talking about with Carl Franklin's career He's showcasing real people being imperfectly human and having these conflicted feelings and they're and they're capable of being hurt whether it's a result of you know something they've done in their past or something they're going to do or something that you know it's leading them to like you mentioned a fork in the road or a, a big decision or a choice you have to make or kind of a moral quandary of sorts and certainly uh hurricane here has to like decide how he's going to, you know, confront this situation that he knows he shouldn't be tied up in, but he is. And part of him wants to play the hero, but in the end he can't, he can't be that, you know, and he did something rather despicable 
and, and that sort of tears down our pedestal idea of this small town sheriff as being, you know, this great guy, this great hometown down to earth guy. But no, I mean, there's, there's certainly the issue of race just coming through all of his movies, mm-hmm. you know, just like you, you, you can, it's infused. You, you can't escape just what happens or what happened in that town and how it's essentially caused his racism too. Right. So, you know, I think it's, it's all character driven. It's all intense. And that final confrontation, I am surprised at how moved I am by it. And yet Mm -hmm. it is inevitable. It's just, it sort of happened. That's the thing. And another thing about his approach to violence, it just kind of happens. It's not like, even I think of that, even just the fight scene you could think of that you showed me too, uh, Jack, is that how it was filmed in Out of Time. Just mm-hmm. that confrontation in the hotel room and the fight scene. It's, it is kind of a messy beginning to all that, just the way they sort of fumble around. It is not at all like choreographed in the same sense that you would get out of <laughs> something like a, a Jackie Chan action scene or whatever. It's just, it, it feels organic again. You know, it yeah. really does. Yeah. Um, um, he was being, I saw an interview when he was, uh, when he was being, when he was having a conversation about uh, one true thing and someone else brought out the word organic. Um, and, and I agree with that. It's, it's this idea. Um, um, this movie, these movies, just have an effortlessness to them, especially the early nineties thrillers. Um, and that's the thing that gets me that it's like, I didn't really have, I mean, Clay can speak to this too, but I didn't really have any baggage with this movie or devil in a blue dress that this just like, I think it's just like popped up on criterion channel and I knew it was great. The word neo noir is now associated with this movie. Um, And to me, and I think it's because it's like then, because I came at this just like, and this goes for so many movies, but this especially, that it doesn't feel subversive. Um, Mm -hmm. It just feels true to itself. It's just like immaculately composed and... um, It doesn't feel like pastiche. It doesn't feel like pastiche. Yeah, it's it's not like a genre commentary of any kind. Exactly, exactly, exactly. yeah, yeah, and um, the ending just really lingered with me too. But, but again, it's it's like yeah, and then he like has those things about race on its mind. Like I think it's like Billy Bob traveling with like two with like black people in his car, like after after like hours in the south. It's like you know, it's like those type of things. Um, but it's it's and it's um, not about that, and it's not right. Like, it's not about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just there, and mm-hmm. it's you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's again like I think that's what he does with this movie is just these people are people, <laughs> and they are experiencing this together, and yet you know, especially when you travel to a certain part of the country, you can't ignore that fact either, uh, and that will uh, come into play too with our next film, and. Uh, I, I, I'm very curious to hear what Clay, how, how strongly Clay feels about Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995. It's 
so it's by far my favorite Franklin, and that's in One False Move is also terrific, and I, you know, and I really, really dig. Um, it could be a flip of the coin for me, out really, of between the two. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Like Devil of Blue Dress is also my favorite Carl Franklin. For Ezekiel Rollins, L.A. was a world of sunshine and shadows. Anime. Hey, how you doing, babe? Junior, take easy on upstairs. Black and white. We got no work here. I'm sorry, fella. My name's not Fella. My name is Ezekiel Rollins. So here you need a job. What kind of work you do? I'm just looking for somebody. Daphne Monet. Fiance of Todd Carter. She's been gone two weeks. See, Daphne has a predilection for the company of Negroes. He thought he knew how to play the game. Any of y'all seen a white girl by the name of Dahlia, Delia, or something like that? Her name is Daphne. You can't get none of that tonight. You know? Until he stepped into a world. Why don't you tell me about your friend Daphne? Tell her woman ain't good enough for you no more, honey. Where there are no rules. Why are you arresting me? How many times did you leave Greta James' house this morning? What is going on? She's not going to be waking up, Ezekiel. I think this film is... We were talking about subversive just a little while ago, and I agree, while it's um, one false move doesn't have like very obvious and deep subversions, I think Devil in a Blue Dress is insanely subversive. Um, this neo-noirs a lot of times almost take place out of time. Mm-hmm. And all, you know, like, there's not uh, involved historical events besides, like, oh, the detective is a former World War II or World War I veteran. There is not this, like, idea of mass cultural change happening. Um, it's, you know, Humphrey Bogart doesn't have to grapple with the fact of, um, I, I don't, like, the fucking Franklin Roosevelt administration <laughs> or whatever. It's these like you know these various these almost uh, s- 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 isolated stories that are happening, and I'm not saying all noirs at that time weren't political or didn't have or didn't address the time they were in, but it was very much not the driving force behind the story. With Devil in the Blue Dress, it is directly connected to history and directly connected to historical events and directly connected to the um, history of that city and the social uh, sociological, like um, uh, socioeconomic uh, changes uh, or uh, evolution of that time, especially when it comes to race. It mm-hmm. directly deals with the Great Migration. Um, and it directly deals with uh, the eco- how uh, economic fortunes in the West changed, and the and how you know like the migration from the Southeast to Texas, and then eventually to LA, and you know post-war economy and redlining. Like it, there's so it, it's one of the like richest neo noirs I've ever seen. There is so much packed into it. Like even reading a newspaper headline has so much subtext and has so much connection to every single part of the film. Uh, one, the last line of the film is Denzel uh, admiring that he has ownership of something. My porch on my or, you know, on my porch, my house, and how that has direct connections to. 
uh, generate like you know to the redlining crisis and generational wealth for Black Americans and the like the predatory uh, methods of the housing market at that time and especially in California as more Black people come into the state like it it, it I wrote like an entire like history I I wrote this massive project for my history class connecting films to like you know to history uh to like you know history for black americans and you know there's films like i you know and i connect something to like you know some more genre stuff like night of the living dead and something in like uh, a a film about like you know uh, the jim crow south with the learning tree and things mm-hmm. like that um but devil Ooh, i want to read def- i want to read this paper by the way <laughs> yeah I, I can send it um devil new blue dress is a direct like i wrote a ton about how much history and um cultural uh significance it it, it there is with the film uh, you know and like gi bill and veterans coming back from world war ii all these things but it also operates as an acting showcase for denzel and don Cheadle. And I and Denzel is my favorite actor of all time. Uh, I, I wrote, I think I, I tweeted out a little something yesterday about like all the like some of his more underappreciated films are just all the films I love from him. And I look at the that list sometimes, and I'm just like, I just I'm absolutely head over heels with him as an actor, as a performer. He's so he has so much charm and charisma, but also has the, the eyes like the most empathetic and empathetic eyes I think I've ever seen on an actor. Uh, his look of despair and concern haunts me in so many different films, um, and his in his uh, his look of shock in moments, especially in this film, also like stick with me. So I, I've talked to somebody. These- I've talked to somebody who feels Denzel is always too cocky, and I go, I think you're misinterpreting cockiness for confidence because he's just mm. naturalistically confident or in swagger. most of his movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't understand people being turned off, you know, by Denzel. Well, and I think that takes away from what he does in his reactions to scenes mm-hmm. when he's not talking and also, and like, I mean, and he's also worked with some incredible directors, uh, um, especially with one with directors who know how to shoot a close up. And he, and like, you know, you Spike Lee it does oh, amazing yeah. close ups. Uh, Jonathan Demi has an, a great, is great with close ups. Uh, man on, you know, Tony Scott, Tony Scott and Carl Franklin as well. Um, but, I think there's those moments that people take away from Denzel because they don't really pay attention to his performance. They listen to the words that come out of his mouth, but they don't pay attention to his body language or his facial expressions, especially in scenes where he's not dominating the dialogue. Um, but yeah, I, 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 and I'm worried I'm going to like talk over everybody for this, but devil blue dress is an insanely important film for me. I've seen it twice. Um, it's, one of just my favorite neo noirs. It's one of my favorite Denzel performances and Denzel movies. And it's my favorite Carl Franklin film. It's one of my favorite films of the nineties. Um, it, it, it's a rich, rich story, uh, that displays so much nuance and intricacies, uh, when it comes to the history of that time, the culture of that time, but also a, a brilliant, uh, entertaining, uh, compelling, neo-noir you know paperback you know thriller um it's just i don't know it's so easy to watch that's what the i next, love about the it next too. movie is uh one true thing i think we can 
move on. Like that's not, <laughs> yeah. You just summed it up. I had a feeling. I just wanted you to lead it because I just right, like I, right, I have right. a good feeling about Clay yeah. and talking about off Devil. the leash. Yeah, yeah. Let it let it rip. I'm all for it. I just uh-huh. I don't know. I you summed mm-hmm. it up. I I I could echo everything that you've said in terms of it sort of examining all kinds of tension, racial tension, police brutality, uh, the political and economic and social inequality, all of that kind of going on. And, you know, certainly that, the, the that, uh, that mayor, that mayor, uh, was playing, I think it's Maury Chaikin. Is that the actor who's in this? He's always just, yeah. Maury so. Chaikin. Yeah. Is that as yeah. uh, Terrell, Oh, mm. he's always just a good creep. And just mm. you just know that when he's sitting with that that little boy in the back seat, I'm just like, "Oh, I know. Oh god, I just I have a bad it's feeling." It's those kind of that. character actors that just have the look yes. of uh, like particularly the 90s mm-hmm. that just has these types of um supporting characters uh that are of an age that you're just like that that looks ex- exactly the part yeah, and you know, I, I, there's no doubt that Franklin loved film noir, and he certainly loved stuff like The Big Sleep, or even you can, you can see shades of Chinatown in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and I think that's that's a that's <laughs> that's a high bar, but it's still, I think it, it could very well be up there in terms of like, but this is the third or fourth time I've seen it, and I think I'm loving it more and more for just like the attention to detail, and you know, anytime I watch this movie. It, I just think that has to be one of the best character introductions in film history with Mouse and, and Don Cheadle. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it. It makes sense, like, why suddenly everybody wants to work with Don Cheadle after seeing this movie. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, just... T- I mean, listen, just talk about a, a breakout film like One False Move for Carl Franklin, but a breakout performance as Mouse for... Uh, Don Cheadle here. Um, if 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 I'm Mouse, then Clay is easy, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, yeah. I mean, just to echo what you guys said, um, a masterclass in 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 genre workings. Like this isn't like a genre exercise because, like, I sent you guys that 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 conversation with with Carl Franklin, Don Cheadle. Carl Franklin goes on to say, um, I didn't want to make a noir thriller, let alone a black noir thriller, because those just didn't exist, nor did they exist for Carl Franklin to make. Um, but yet here, it's it's just sort of that one instance where it's like, I need to explore everything in this traditional genre Um with with all this social commentary, um, with with all this tension, socially, politically, racially, like like we said, but also something that's that that's in the background. This is like a like very shortly after World War II, um, and and things and morality has shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, people aren't as clean as they used to be, um, and and easy um, is is a detective but it's detective by circumstance right this isn't um this isn't like jake from chinatown that that's that has an office as the movie starts um i find yeah i find really cool um 
Yeah, he just sort of falls into it in the same way Carl Franklin fell into directing. Right. You know, it's just this like, is about Carl Franklin starting a directing career. This, this, this is what this movie's about. Oh, every movie's about making movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. And not to, you know, over emphasize the um, whole connection to history it, it has, but like, Jack, you mentioned post-World War II, and it's like the only reason he could afford that house is the yeah. GI Bill. Right. And that's the only reason he was able to accrue enough money. But the thing is, the GI Bill at that time was not distributed evenly to black Americans. It didn't also the – GI, the part of the GI Bill was you could also get much better housing loans um, uh, for uh, veterans. And that was not always applicable to black veterans as, it, it, because they, they were just these very obvious um, inequalities and discrepancies in that legislation and in those like um, uh, social services. But the idea is he, he becomes a detective is because he is, he gets fired based off of racial discrimination and how he can't afford predatory pricing for his house Hmm. and how like a shifting Nate, like he just, all he wants is to keep ownership of one goddamn thing. Um, and that is what drives the beginning of the film. And that's what, because he's trying to keep his whole life afloat. Cause if he loses this house, he's moving back to Houston and he's moving and he's going back to a life with a uh, mouse. Um, and there's also not, there's not a great chance. He keeps that house with, uh, like, so on the, at the end, when he's making that speech at my house, you know, with my friend on my porch and we laughed a great long time. The newspaper, I think his friend has, the headline is Black Americans Angered at Housing Prices. Like, this is all super intentional and detailed. And it has this written, has this very, you know, this like subtle story of like foundational changes and foundational inequalities in America. But it, 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 it's, so I think one of my favorite things about it, this film just operates on so many different levels. It is a perfect Denzel showcase and a Don Mm -hmm. Cheadle showcase. It is incredibly well-directed neo-noir, a fantastic script with great supporting characters. It is. Talk Fujimoto cinematography. Oh, one of our great cinematographers. Yeah. Yeah. And the environment is so well drawn out, just like you said earlier, Jim, of Franklin's uh, mastery with setting the tone through the, um, the way he, uh, he depicts and portrays the cities that these characters live in and that where the film is taking place. Yeah. Um, Seeing the palm trees and all that, that, like the stretch mm. of, and that final shot too of Denzel with the palm trees. Oh, it's Mm -hmm. so good. It's perfect. I love that shot so much. You guys, this movie is so good. <laughs> yeah, and like Elmer Bernstein, oh, his mm, score is good. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 nothing to quibble about. I, I don't know. think. No, right? it's it, uh, it's quite. I mean, like Clay said, it's. I think even now, like like Criterion has finally put out this movie. Uh, there's been rep screenings. You know, it's it's been really celebrated. Um, it's an. I, from what I can gather, it's an important bullet point in Denzel's career. Um, I think it's really like inarguably one of the, uh, one of the um, important milestones of the nineties for, for crimes, for just cinema, right? Just, just for great filmmaking and great drama. Um, So why didn't this, 
click at the time? Why didn't this become, I mean, is there a disconnect with audiences and film noir or neo-noir? Like it just, well, that's never... the thing is what neo-noirs are hitting at this moment. Like right. when's dark city or whatever. And that's not even it, really that applicable. LA right. confidential was the one that, you know, garnered and so that, much acclaim and awards. Right. And that that's was three like, years later. And you have to have on. three yeah. movie stars for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that was that, I guess that's, you could say that's more approachable, but I don't even know like what's cause, cause that was, you know, yeah. Like you say, it's more, more of an Oscar friendly. Cause how cool would I it have guess. been to have an easy Rollins trilogy or, you know, just right. like more right. of this, like the, the adventures of easy and mouse <laughs> you, for a couple you would of movies think that this, that like easy and mouse would have, um, uh, a legacy like uh, Philip Marlowe. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a shame that audiences didn't step up and celebrate this movie because this was, this was, uh, you know, Denzel was a pretty big box office star at this time. He had an Oscar by this time. (laughs) I just think maybe they don't want to see him in the, in the forties. Like they only want modern Denzel. I think that was brought up in that Q and a from the, from the music box. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was just like, Oh, that kind of that kind of bugs me because I I I don't I don't know I know there's another equalizer is there another equalizer movie coming out yes, this year yeah this this summer oh. yeah with Dakota Fanning I believe mm. uh, Clay's a producer yeah no I don't claim those I don't claim those <laughs> oh really um, okay. I, I I mean they're fine I, I wish I would like I would I, I wish I liked them more uh, they would make a, it makes a better TV show um, mm. I. That my whole idea is, I think they're. I mean, okay, what this is ninety five. What does he have before this besides that Oscar? That is just like, like um, I mean, obviously you have Malcolm X or. Uh, yeah, Philadelphia, the Pelican Philadelphia. Grief. He, uh, Saint Elsewhere, of course. Um, like yeah, but more. these like I'm seeing like Mo Better Blues, Mrs. Crimson Minnesota, Tide, oh yeah, Ricochet. Crimson Tide. Um, but I don't do think nothing. he starts becoming Denzel until I don't know. It's like I, I think there's this moment that happens with like Training Day that kind of sets mm. him over, like puts him in this echelon of movie star. I that, think you're right. Yeah, because I think that's when he also becomes a cultural footprint. I mean, he's a well-respected actor before then. But Malcolm X, it, you know, it was, uh, you know, horribly undervalued when it's a goddamn masterpiece. Uh, the Pelican Brief was a nice thriller, while he, you know, while probably Julia Roberts has more screen time than he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it's a good success. Philadelphia is an Oscar favorite, um, but he's also sharing. He's on the co- like sharing screen time with Hanks. Crimson mm-hmm. Tide is a fantastic movie it's not like modest hit yeah it it kind of made made, hit yeah and he's playing and he's playing against um uh uh gene hackman and then yeah and then you have this stretch of virtual virtuosity devil will be dressed courage under like courage under fire the preacher's wife uh fallen and (laughs) these (laughs) these are like these are very much you know not these don't break the cultural footprint he can't move past the modest box office hit. Mm-hmm. He can't move past the ones that either, you know, like that make maybe like, you know, around a little bit more than a little bit more than their budget 
or you get one or two that double the budget. Mm-hmm. But also ones that aren't don't grab the culture by the uh, shoulders and completely take over. I yeah. think it's when and like and if you look at Denzel memes and stuff like that, which I know is a fr- ridiculous way to measure this, but if you want to measure his cultural impact, you have to start at training day. Yeah. Cuz that's when he really makes his pop and that's when you also get Man on Fire, that's also when you get um like American Gangster is now seen by a lot of people who are not like necessarily like film lovers as a comp- a very undervalued film. Mm-hmm. I think if people um, were to do a Denzel impression, it would be something from Training Day, like yeah. the King Kong. Absolutely, yeah. and you and you'll see him on fucking T, uh, M- the NBA halftime show with you know Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal, and the quote they're going to ask him to do, which is at, which happened, was the quote from Training Day. Yeah. It's like these are the scenes that people want to like that rem- that remind them of Denzel. And obviously, if you go back to his you know earlier work, you'll see that his career has always been super rich and he has mm-hmm. made great films, especially in the crime genre. I mean, like Ricochet is a complete is so much fun. It is complete <laughs> trash, but it's so much fun to watch. Um, so, in you know, of course, and then you know, in Crimson Tide is one of my favorite films ever made. Um, so Agreed. he is he has this great filmography but when you measure a culture measure cultural impact it really just starts at training day at least that's my opinion. no i yeah. agree and i it's i think i because i often say this about certain directors like when i watch like the new wes anderson movie it does make me want to go back and watch other wes anderson movies and that's a good thing that's like a good sign that you're invested so strongly in an artistic expression from one singular voice that you're like, I want to recontextualize this and go back. And the same happens with Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson. The moment I watch whatever they're doing next, uh, I tend to want to go back and see how it fits in with their overall filmography. When I watched, you know, two Denzel movies for this episode, I'm like, I just want to go watch a bunch of Denzel movies. I don't care if they're mediocre. You know, like I'll I'll watch that Manchurian Candidate remake again sometime in the near oh, future. Oh, which rules? Yeah, you know, I haven't watched it in a long time. I remember, yeah, being really. It's great. one of his best performances. Yeah. It's yeah. It, he, I, I, I love Denzel. I mean, you go from Tony Scott. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the recent his recent Mac, the recent Macbeth movie he was amazing yeah. in. Um, even re- in the Equalizer movies, he makes those watchable. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Like, and I want to get back to the training day thing in a second, but like the 2022 Oscars, after a long, long night to get there, we get to best actor. (laughs) No, but we, we get to like Denzel's Oscar clip in that monologue in Macbeth. And like, you know, it's like, I just, you get, I mean, even from like your, your living room, let alone in the Dolby theater, like the applause that Denzel gets from that 30 seconds of acting is like you, it is so felt. And in 2023, he is such an, a legend and one of the best actors ever. And people just like took that moment to like really uh, stand up and, and congratulate what he did there. But um, I, yeah, I also agree with, um, with what we say about, about Alonzo Harris being that, iconic role but it is funny because like yeah like the 90s are full of movies that 
that like movie nerds will appreciate. Ricochet. Like, right. Right. <laughs> like, like I do I, not to dismiss, like, I, like casuals will love like crimson tide. Like these aren't things that are on inaccessible, but no, he doesn't make niche films. Right. Right, but it's I guess no. Training Event Day is just, probably the most inaccessible film he's ever made. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's like the artiest thing he's done in a while. But um, yeah, no. I guess Training Day just hit something, and I, I I've always thought of it as kind of disposable. But I I get it. You know, it's like oh, it's yeah, inter- yeah. it's interesting. Like I just don't. I just don't. I've not. I've never. I mean, it's a found great it performance be, in an okay movie. Really, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't think of much of Antoine Fuqua as a director. Yeah. No, me neither. Yeah, but no. Um, I, 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 we got we got a couple of movies here in a row that I don't want to just immediately dismiss and be like, well, mm-hmm. they're they're lesser than. No, I got I got thoughts. Minor. I got thoughts on them. Oh God, my mom is throwing a surprise party for my dad's birthday, and it's tonight. Mom is your favorite literary figure. I'm just not up to dealing with her. You know I can't do costumes. Why? Just so... Human? Mom. <gasps> There's you! Gimme, gimme, gimme. We have the Halloween festival for the kids. We have Thanksgiving, a benefit for the older people. And then we have to decorate all the Christmas trees in town square. Hi. Happy birthday, Dad. Did you get a chance to look at my latest piece? Yes. Writer to writer. Less is more. Your dad always says less is more. Mm-hmm. To me, more is more. Mom? Gonna have to have surgery. Is she going to die? No, she's not going to die. I want you to move home and take care of her. I think at the time they were uh, immediately dismissed as, as our... More as or less. I mean... Uh, Anything that stars Meryl Streep is going to get some attention because, oh, it's Meryl Streep. She's going to be amazing because she's Meryl Streep, Mm -hmm. you know, like I I, I think somebody should do separate podcasts, like just do a whole podcast dedicated to Denzel, do a whole podcast dedicated to Meryl Streep. I would listen, you know, Mm -hmm. because they're all timers. They're they're true legends and just acting gods. (laughs) So I enjoy watching what they do. Is like yes, you'll get a lot of enjoyment because seeing something like um, Devil in a Blue Dress in Out of Time does make you want to go back to the Denzel that that you love, like right. like things that you will love to rewatch. But but you just will you will get that sense further from from seeing things for a project. Yet what I love is like what are the things in between like the famous projects like what no, are they're your, interesting your bone collectors and your john Hughes, right sure um and, and i think no, i, I think that. we have one here with meryl like like one true thing i mean to borrow um to borrow a name from from uh friends of our pod um the b-side i think this couldn't even qualify as a b-side not necessarily something you'll think of as um an iconic meryl role from the 90s. I mean, all but, three of them, Kurt, yeah. Zellweger, they're all B-sides to yeah. a, a certain extent. This is extent. true. More or less, mm-hmm. yeah. And I'm not, and those, and, and wait, are we doing one true thing now? Yes. Okay. And That's the truth. We're doing one truth. That's true. That's the one true thing. Everything <laughs> yeah. else we said is false. The one true thing is that we're doing one true thing. Yeah, so my um, cat agrees, and she's going to meow at me. <laughs> yes, we're doing one true thing right now, Lucy. Mm-hmm. I have I, my I have my dog outside, so he might bark to to ask me to let him back in in a second. What's Cass's favorite s- Carl Franklin? 
Um, and one false. Actually, no. Out of time. He loves the Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaiian shirts. He can't get enough of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm with um, him. But one, one, one true thing. It's, it's funny because you could easily just see like, well, of course this like got what six nominations, won two of them, and was like an Oscar favorite. Because um, it has all the ingredients and it's competently made. Um, but it is, yeah, it's just one of those things where, like, oh, I guess this one just didn't do it. It's a cancer drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I mean, a lot of people will just, it's not a, it's not even a movie that I can get, you know, like, oh, my mom or my aunts t- to get excited about because it's depressing and not a lot of people want to sit through something where they know the outcome more or less, you know, I mean. I don't want to dismiss it and be like, well, it's like a lifetime movie because it's not. It's it, I, it's it's more. No, than it's that. far. No, I think it's I think it's quite. I think it's it's. But it has the very ingredients well of a lifetime movie. That's yes. the That's, issue. It, yeah, it does. Yeah. It does get into schmaltzy territory. Like it does. It, he always I mean, is able it, to it skirt is, by it, though. It's really. Right. Incre- it's actually it is, really. It is impressive. Um, but there are moments where you do feel like this is like. He wanted to make a melodrama, you know, like this. Sure. It, it does, go, it out does side, go outside your comfort zone. That's or fine. this yeah. was, a, I mean, this also feels like, okay, he, he, you know, he wanted a gig. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I still, I, I don't think this movie is lazy by any means, but I, I don't have, and maybe this is just because I just don't like it as much, but I do not sense the same passion right. he had for the previous two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'll say it's well observed and, it, it's definitely coming from a personal place because this is based on a memoir uh, of sorts. You know, the, mm-hmm. the the character that Renee Zellweger is playing is the author of that memoir and taking her oh, experiences. Course, yeah, yeah, and yeah, her experience. Yeah. It's almost like a Julie and Julia situation mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's like based on a memoir and the characters in the movie. But it, it's yeah, it's 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 compassionate. It's thoughtful. It's yeah. it's well observed. But I. I mean, I don't care about what the husband is going through and how he's being selfish and having affairs or, you know, is feeling really self-conscious about these poets that are visiting for dinner or what. I mean, like, it is the Renee Zell... The, the arc is Renee Zellweger's, and it's about her becoming closer to her mother, and that is what I'm invested in. I didn't need to know... I mean, I know <laughs> William Hurt's the father and the husband, so of course he's going to be there. But I guess I just didn't care when we sort of, you know, d- veered into, like, what's he doing, you know, behind the his office, at, at, you know, at the college or whatever. And, you know, I just... I think that, like... I know he's trying to, like, just give us a full picture of the f- whole family as opposed to just mm-hmm. making it about Renee Zellweger and Meryl Streep, but yeah, I just didn't care I, about that side and of I think, things. Um, and I think that, like... A little bit of how William Hurt becomes the secondary to Renee Zellweger's mm. um, caretaker. That he then starts to like go into the background a little bit of like William Everett Scott's character um, and how it's Tom, like Tom Everett Scott. Yeah. Oh, Tom. Or what did I say? Um, but it's a little bit of like how they're not necessarily the leads, but it's almost like the movie wants to like swerve back into William Hurt. It's like, <laughs> I, I think it's like losing focus of that. This is Renee Zellweger's movie. Um, 
and it becomes a more interesting movie once <laughs> once the movie starts to end um because it's, it's like truly oh picks yeah up in the last half. yeah that's only yeah, that's i really find a little it. more prickly and a little more yeah. interesting because that yeah. first half can be kind of rough at moments especially with the stuff with the minis and the domestic mm-hmm. housewife wifeness of it all because obviously it's trying to display how kind of cringy this is but the unfortunate part is you're still spending a lot of time with the cringy parts. And it's one of the, like, I, I know that was on purpose, but it's also just not an enjoyable thing to watch right. at a certain point. Right. Like you get the idea um, and you get like why she would be so, uh, why Renee Zellweger would be so against and kind of disgusted by some of that uh, cultural stuff. But I, I, I think with the thing with the William Hurt stuff is I think he gives a pretty great performance here. But I think he th- that character is just not set up properly, because the whole idea is that he is Renee's favorite, and he's like this great, charming, like uh, you know, uh, academic. And the issue is the moment he like besides like the first real initial moment he comes on screen, you're like this guy kind of sucks. Yeah, there's that's no, how I felt you, right away. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you don't really believe. And I mean, sorry. Uh, you don't really believe that he is all that crap. Like the, he—he's depicted as this, like you know the community loves him. He's all this you know you know verbose and uh, you know interesting and charismatic you know academic. But you're just like, and the issue is sometimes with some William Hurt performances, and I think William Hurt's a terrific actor, mm-hmm. is that... Broadcast is one of my favorites ever. Absolutely. Right, but you have to understand that the key to a William Hurt performance is that he's inherently a dick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to sell on a I'm smitten with William Hurt. Broadcast News does the best, but it also shows that underbelly throughout the whole thing and that's very pointed and that's very detailed right with this it's almost like well everyone loves william hurt but twist he's william hurt um (laughs) (laughs) and that doesn't work no if i could bring up the casting what if that i did find for this and it would make it a much different movie because this is a much different actor but i think it would be better for it which is nick nolte um, oh, absolutely. Ooh, yeah. Absolutely. Right? Like, totally. Nick, like a post-affliction Nick Nolte would absolutely crush in this. Um, you could even keep the same occupation. And if there's any scene that really doesn't have much air in it, it's like when Ellen blows up at him and is like, mm. you're not there to support me. And I don't think you're, you're present in my life for, for mom anymore. And because um, it's a scene that should have happened it, yeah, twenty minutes with, ago. And think about that with Nolte. Yeah. Like that would have really sold me. Mm. And because because like like that is a part because Nolte for me has like a Jack Nicholson thing where it's like okay, there's something clearly wrong with this person, <laughs> but it's like there is a bit of charisma there. Where it's but but like there but it doesn't quite hold with William Hurt's smugness, right? Yeah, I can believe Nick Nolte's wounded or something, right? Yeah, because and William Hurt's supposed to be this enigma in this movie. You're like, no, he's William Hurt. I have it. I got it figured out. 
like I'm I, I know who he is like from scene one instead of this like unknowable you know very private academic who just like oh what does he who is he you know he has all these double double uh, sides to him like at one point he's the very caring husband and the other point he's cheating and it's like who's the real William Hurt and it's one of those things where you're just like I mean, he's just a dick. Um, like, yeah, to where, like, when he does that, you know, gesture of bringing the restaurant to their house, I almost like go, uh, I don't know. He's still a dick. I mean, he did something nice, I guess, but I don't know if I buy that entirely. Like, it, it I know he's doing it because he feels guilty, you mm. know. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's it is a weird push and pull kind of experience with his character to where. I'm like, I just want to focus on the whole idea of how hard it is to balance a personal life with caretaking for a parent, because that is kind of an interesting angle for the story to take, because otherwise it would just be, I don't want to, you know, call it like, because, yeah, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's just that trauma porn thing now that people no, say it's just like no, misery, no yeah. misery porn or whatever, you know, like, I, I mean, don't want uh, both that. works. Yeah, yeah. And I just kind of get like, I get exhausted by that idea. And I'm glad that's not this movie because we get to see Renee Zellweger really struggle to maintain a career while also trying to have, you know, a relationship with her mother that she never had before, all while the fact that she's dying. And that is just a lot. You know, and I, I just that's kind of why I kind of go, let's just take William Hurt out of the picture right. <laughs> so we can focus on these really interesting aspects of the of, of this story, because I don't think we normally get that side of things, because at times Renee Zellweger is being selfish and is like just saying, well, I, I got to really focus on this story or, you know, this is my career. I got to make sure this you know, I don't want to neglect this. I don't want to neglect, neglect my personal life, too. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of. People at her age in that situation would struggle with that. And it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. make you a bad person. You might be doing selfish things at times, but it, it kind of makes sense because you also don't want to see some your, your parent dying either. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so it is hard. And it's something that I went through, you know, with, with a very short time with my dad who passed from kidney cancer. So mm-hmm. sitting down to watch a cancer drama with a parent dying is not something I looked forward to, but I think it's handled without the soap opera melodramatics Mm -hmm. that I was fearing. And that's where Carl Franklin's inherent lack of stylishness comes through where he just like lets the drama speak for itself. It's like that profound um, question of like, does Ellen let Kate, live like this like they say or um or like when they're at that gathering and one of kate's friends comes up to ellen and she's like i hate to see her like this and then she's like it's not gonna be for much longer um of course it's like it's like it is that it's that morality thing that um that ellen is is um it does make selfish decisions and maybe is a selfish person yet is like forced into this very thankless role of like you just need to like like your parent is going to pass and it's like it is that reckoning with it but it's like trying to make that that as smooth as possible um when that's difficult and 
at the very least, like Zoeger really sells that for me. And it also pisses me off that the husband isn't taking time off of work because your wife's <laughs> dying, dude. Right. Take well, time off. And that's and that's the inherent issue with the film for me is that this film try is trying to kind of be like ah you know the husband he you know he he seems it seems like he's kind of a good guy or a family man but he really isn't or then when it when it really showcases oh he actually really isn't it still then tries to go back to be like well he still cares about his family it's this idea of they're trying to make a pretty binary character nuanced like they're like okay he's objectively doing horrible and shitty things to his wife and to his daughter, but there's a side to him, and it's because he's mad about his work, and it's just like no one buys that. He's do he's like like it's it's trying to think you know he he's doing these pretty horrible things at one of the most vulnerable and uh, precious times in everyone's life uh, around this, and he's just doing things that a really bad person would do neglect his dying wife, have his daughter take care of everything just because he can go fuck around with students. And even, and he also like, and she points it out in her blow up is that you took time for the great American novel, but not our dying, but not for your dying wife. And, and that's the issue. One, that scene. And I disagree with Jack saying that Nick Nolte could have saved it. I think that scene is just structurally, uh, faulty. It's way too late in the movie because you're yeah. just like she should have had this conversation thirty minutes ago, and it's kind. It, it builds up to something that's pretty. It does not have any air because he just kind of walks away, and it's never really revisited. Mm-mm. And so I, I, I think heart is the main issue of the film. But there gets to be these moments with his story that I'm like, oh, this could be something. The moment Ellen, um, that's, uh, no, wait, who's Kate? No, it's Kate. Uh, Kate's Kate Middle Street. Tells, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. Kate pretty much reveals to Ellen, like, oh, I know all of his faults, and I still love him anyway, because that's what I just have mm-hmm. to accept. Right. And there's some really interesting stuff going on with that idea. And it makes you question what is true love? Can that can someone do unforgivable things but still be the person but, but still can you still have that connection? But that comes so late. And there's also no real time to explore it at the end. Because yeah. you're also just like, well, I understand that, Meryl, but I've just seen the rest of this movie and he sucks, like objectively. Mm-hmm. And I can't, and so there is that, there is no nuance to be gained from these objectionably, objection, uh, sorry, I can't speak, objective bad um, things. Like, it's objectively bad that he does all of these horrible things during this time. Um, and how he gaslit, gaslights her, his daughter 100%. And that also interferes with the story of well, is the daughter being too selfish? When I'm like, uh, no, because all of this could probably be solved with a nurse. And True. the film already agrees with that. And you're just like, so the only thing from her, this, that's stopping from her moving, like kind of have exploring her career is that William Hurt has made up this weird thing that he doesn't want a nurse there. And, I, I, it's just one of those things where I'm just like, you're, you're trying, 
to have everything. You're trying to make all these different plot lines and nuances work when it doesn't, when you've kind of already shot yourself in the foot five different times. Yeah. It does take the air out of things. It's it, 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 it lacks dramatic weight, but then suddenly Meryl Streep towards the end just delivers. I mean, that's what she does is just it's like an suddenly amazing, incredible monologue. piece of acting. Yes, it is. It, it just, it, it moves me in a different way. It's almost like it works on multiple layers of, of, I'm moved by what she's saying as a character, but I'm moved by Meryl Streep as an actor on top of that as well. Uh, I just, and it, what is being said is beautiful. So it's just like, you have a moment like that where you kind of go, ah, oh, maybe I'm willing to overlook the issues I have because it has strong moments. It has something like that. Or certainly as you both alluded to earlier, I wouldn't say it's a twist, but just a surprise, a question, a it decision. It just gets much more prickly at the end. Yeah, it just gets it's more surprisingly like, so. Right. Yeah. It gets more into the idea of like, whoa, the husband is actually a piece of dog shit. Oh, whoa. Like, you know, her um, Renee Zellweger actually does lose her job. Um, it's like all of these kind of things that you're like, wow, okay, so this isn't. This isn't going to wrap up. This isn't going to be like she dies and then Renee picks up her, all the pieces from her life and goes on her merry way. Mm-hmm. Like this is something that is going to have everlasting impact. The The reason why this film does not become a pointless exercise is because that kind of second half shift, um, Carl Franklin's incredible directing and I think in, like great editing i think the film is edited really well i think mm. the how it cuts back from her giving those giving her like deposition or whatever the, or her briefing to the da or whatever the fuck um to like what's actually what, what uh, to the story she's telling or the um, memory of that time i think those scenes are cut really well and you know um, move it, it flows really quite um organically and then there's also those cuts to um her childhood memories that i think are Mm -hmm. shot really fun in that kind of orange filter handheld like Mm. extreme close-up tracking kind of idea and it's like in her like povs and stuff i think i i think those kind of filmmaking choices that editing and the performances and the occasional monologues make this film like pretty like you know it's like a seven out of ten you're like yeah that was i didn't hate my time watching it i i didn't like gain any great emotional impact from it besides like some uh, like a few scenes here and there and i wasn't completely gripped but this was like pleasant this was like a pleasantly it's a general it's a really gentleman six yes yeah yeah Yeah. no that's definitely Um, true i mean the, the, the the fact that it includes that moment too with with ellen crushing the pills i think is mm-hmm it's a, and like it's just a touch. wiping them away. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's something I wasn't yeah. anticipating, and, and I'll, I'm I'll sure it's something that's so good in that scene. Oh, She's yeah, so incredible. I, there are a few shots toward the end that are really haunting, like uh, Kate taking her last breaths, and like Ellen just like looking absolutely distraught in the background is like in insanely good. Um, and I mean, yeah, I I agree about the framing device. It's it's curious. Like that is the moment where it's like it made sense once you do read this as a memoir, because um, it, it is like 
and that's what when it clicked in for me. And then and then uh, seeing this in high crimes back to back once once um once you're like oh like it's a little bit of like an investigation right like what how did kate really die like it is like like carl franklin does like that aspect mm-hmm. um, yeah a little a little it, air of mystery yeah yeah. That, yeah yeah a little air of, yeah exactly it's just interesting to put in a cancer yeah. drama and yeah. that's why i thought don't dismiss it like that you know there's there's more exactly. to it yeah, so I was uh, dreading watching it though, even more than oh, sure. High Crimes. When <laughs> but, I was like, High Crimes, I can watch even though if it's worse. But I'm just like, right. this is just like, I also it's one of my least favorite favorite genres, like middle class, sure. do, a domestic fam, a family, like family domestic films. It's like, I don't, I don't care. Like it either has to be like this incredibly well directed romance between these like terms of endearment. White it has Americans. to be like something amazing. right, right, right. Like um, or like, and yeah, it's hard for me to care. Like you do have to take something like this and hand it to a master of like a relationship drama like James L. Brooks or Jonathan Demi. It and is a great like, script. Which yeah. is this is not. This is not no. a great script. No, no, it's not. Um and I'm and also I'm drafting to Michelle O'Connell what she would think of Nick Nolte in the uh William Hurt part. You know. Um <laughs> I'd be, I'd be curious to see that. I wish uh-huh. maybe that's how we should use AI. Just like, <laughs> let's recast movies the way we want them to be and just see what that would be like. I mean, it wouldn't work. I mean, it would be terrible. I'm sure. But cause you can't get the real thing. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's get high and, uh, talk about his Do we next all pop film. our edible at the same time? Do we? Yeah. That's what we all, instead of cracking open a can, of Diet Coke, we all have to pop in our edible <laughs> at the same time. But then you have to wait for it to kick in. So it would probably kick in as soon as we're done talking about High Crimes, also known as Hello Crimes, um, reuniting <laughs> the same acting duo from the 1997 film Kiss the Girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's It's... I, I guess it's it's watchable. It's fine. I this is one of the ones I watched earliest, like three weeks ago, and I kind of I wouldn't say it's completely left my mind, but it's I I watched and I was like I'm entertained by this. It is what it is. I am not. It's not going to linger in my mind, and I was right. <laughs> like when I first, when it was over, I was just like, okay, yeah. I mean, I like the performances. There's some interesting choices here and there, good editing, but there there's a moment pretty early on when Jim Caviezel does like a like a like a look or like a shady eye shift or something mm. after there's been a bur- a burglary in their home, and that's the moment I went, I think I know how this is going to play out, even yeah. if the movie is constantly questioning, well, what did he do, and it was is he a bad guy, but. I mean, I'm a sucker for a courtroom drama, right. you know, like I, I can get behind them when they're done well. And Carl Franklin's a great director. So it's not, it's not like it, it lacked substance. It was just pretty, pretty conventional mm-hmm. compared to everything else he's done. You know, I mean, like he does have these little, you know, subplots, like just Amanda Pete wanting to have sex with Adam Scott. I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> 
you know, I, but yeah, I, I think the, the, the plot manipulations and just like, Oh, here comes the twist, that sort of thing. I don't know. I, I just, I kind of stopped caring after a certain point. You have a warrant for the arrest of someone named Ron Chapman. My husband is Tom Kubicki. What the hell is going on? I'm an attorney. I have the right to know the charges. Murder? Yes. If convicted, he'll get the death penalty. You're saying that you were framed by Brigadier General Marks? He was Colonel Bill Marks back then. I need somebody from the Marine Corps. Somebody who's beaten him before and is hungry to beat him again. Military justice is the justice of military music is the music, Mrs. Kubik. Wake up and smell the napalm. Then we fight the system. We fight the system. You lose. You play by the rules. Were there any eyewitnesses to the murders? We had seven eyewitness statements, all IDing Chapman as a shooter. Only two of these witnesses for the prosecution are on their list. Now, what happened to the other five? Witnesses were murdered. I mean, like, the issue is, like... I love a courtroom drama too, and I was ready for this to go like full um, a few good men mode, but <laughs> it's not really a court. Like, there's not much courtroom drama in this, um, at least not to the extent where you would expect, because it does veer off into like um, the Tom and Claire marriage and like. Charlie's alcoholism uh, and, and and other stuff, but it's not not like set. It, I, to me, this is like like kind of overwritten. Like there's a like oh, few, oh, too it's ma- so overwritten, right? Like there's a few <laughs> like overwritten. Like there's narrative pivots, or it's like wait, what? Like it's too long. Like, um, but just I, like yeah, out of nowhere I, moments, like when um, yeah, when when Charlie goes to that hotel and then suddenly Michael Shannon shows up. I'm just like, Oh yes, please. I want weird, (laughs) unexpected Michael Shannon to just steal the movie for a scene or two. It's giving like groundhog day. Like, Oh wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) Yeah, no, but like it's, it's similar to what he does in before the devil knows you're dead, where he just calling (laughs) Ethan Hawke Chico for no reason. You know? (laughs) Yeah, that happens. I think I just wanted more of that and kind of it's, I would I don't know by the numbers, but also yeah, very overwritten mm-hmm. for sure. Too I much. and I just I don't know I, I I have the film should be like my favorite kind of movie. It's exactly what I want. It's exactly good trash I'm asking fun. for. Yeah, a two header, you know, twists galore, courtroom and military jargon. <laughs> Bizarre <laughs> politics that are kind of good, maybe, um, and just like exactly it's like accidentally what I good, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's just that it almost it, it becomes a it's a six out of ten for the majority of the runtime. But when it's the final twist, it's like yeah, no, it's him. He was the guy. It's <laughs> like all right, I wait. We wasted two goddamn hours doing this, really, like. I understand you want to end on a twist and you want to have this, you know, you know, you know, trashy fun, but I just, it's just one of, it's just one of those things where I'm just like, that's like literally a foundational twist that makes me feel like I wasted most of my time. Cause I'll be honest, I didn't buy it, but even if I didn't buy it, it's like, so we're really going to go through all of this just for it to actually be him. I think it's an incredible, lazy, incredibly lazy writing. I don't think he's great. Um, 
I, I, I think he's uh, pretty much outmatched by both uh, Freeman. I mean, not everyone in the movie, basically. Um, I don't buy their relationship all that much. Uh, I, 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 yeah, it's just – but I will say, though, I just want to point out, and I forgot to mention it. This is another example of Franklin being a master at setting – uh, setting up the environment and setting up the city the film takes place in. It, mm-hmm. it absolutely has that Texas right next to um, a military base vibes. It's perfectly mm. yeah. articulated yeah. and uh, the the vibes are strong. Um, but I'd also, uh, I, I think the um, one true thing is that, you know, that upper, like, you know, northeastern, um, you know, uh, yuppie, kind of area with all the these, one true you know, thing about domestic, one true thing right and the domestic bliss of it all and the how the fall has all these can show off all the these foliage. nice houses yeah. and all of the fly and all the leaves on the ground and it's all kind of warm and cozy like it, like we mentioned he even with like just pretty much just like five establishing establishing shots he can just uh, articulate the exact environment that the film takes place in um, and so, it, it, so there's that. And yeah. Morgan Freeman's good, and uh, she's good, and it's like, all right, I mean, fine. I, I didn't hate the time I watched it. I was really interested, though, because I just did a, his, uh, like a deep research project on El Salvador and the politics and conflict of then. And so when it was starting out as, oh, the rebels were really the terrorists, I'm like, fuck, man, really? Like, especially with the, you know, like, it, it, not to get too deep into the history, but the uh, the... Uh, the totalitarian government at that time committed 80 to like 85 to like 90% of the atrocities committed during the Salvadorian civil war. And by, with the backing of the U S government and the CIA. So shocking. I know. Right. (laughs) Um, so I was like, fuck. And then, you know, it twists out like, no, the military were actually the evil ones. And it's like, okay, all right, I guess we're doing something here. And that's kind of interesting. And it's, I, I and there's these dialogue moments of like that's what they trained us to do and all these different I, I, there's there's like some commentary but yeah it's super shallow it's hollow it doesn't it, it doesn't have that pizzazz or that spark that these movies like these kind of movies need to sustain itself yeah. and like you said Jack it is way too goddamn long I yeah, do kind of wish long. that like villainizing the military was what the movie was one of the things that the movie was about other than that being like almost treated like another twist where it's like, Oh wait, what if the militaries were the bad guys? What? Right. 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 And that's the end. And that's, and that's the, yeah, and that's the, right. And I think and, they bred a killer. Have, it's like, okay, what? Like, but he has, he does have these moments of incredible, like, you know, like, these really incredibly tense scenes when, when she's meeting um, the Salvadorian gentleman who survived that massacre or the final set piece of him almost killing her. And then that same Salvadorian gentleman coming in and kind of saving the day. Um, I don't when know. Just, he doesn't when, have you to- des- <laughs> when you describe it, it's like <laughs> the same just, man comes back and like, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have a name, which, you know, is uh, right, not great. Right. Um, but <laughs> right, right, which, like, which then forces you to be like, uh, um, he's also, oh, that's a great character actor though, by the way. And I think he's like making a million dollars off of, uh, Mayans or sons of anarchy or whatever. Like he was in sons of anarchy and then he was in that spinoff. 
Mayans or whatever. But he's a he's a great character actor. He's also in Collateral. Um, mm. He's he's mm. Really, he's really good. Um, but and, and he's terrific in this movie too. I wish mm. there was more. I think I'm, I'm glad that he has like I think guess he's like a, a supporting lead in Emilio my, Rivera. Watch that show. Yeah, he's he's yeah, great. Okay. He's great. Yeah. Um, I don't think he's from El Salvador, but that's another that's another thing. Yeah. Um, but what was I gonna say? Yeah, no, I think it's um, I think. I think there's just great moments of tension and like, you know, with the break-in and the gasoline on the car and like when it gets to those conflicts, you know, Franklin goes back to his bag that you see in Devil in the Blue Dress and in One False Move where you're just like just these great setups of action and conflicts and a great use of space and time and let scenes breathe as well. Um, it, it, it's just when you get to the other stuff and like the actual story, and I, I think that the issue with the last two, one true thing, and um, in high crimes, is like he just doesn't have a great script to work with after having two amazing scripts to work with. Yeah, mm-hmm. director for hire kind of stuff. Um, but I, you know, you mentioned letting scenes breathe. I I completely was remiss in not mentioning the. Uh, the death of Tom Sizemore in, in devil in a blue dress as just being yeah. sublime, like just yeah. having both of them standing over him as he's slowly dying. Mm. is just, oof. it and really gave, gets to um, And, uh, uh, Carl Franklin gave this anecdote about working with Sizemore said he was complete professional and was really locked into the character. Uh, and when he would finish a take and he would give Carl Franklin that look, or it's like suited it there. <laughs> or it's like that. I mean, that's Tom, right? Like that. That. God, that um, that's fun. I, I hope no, he's not yeah, a bad dude yeah. because I love watching him. I don't know. I don't know about. I don't know him personally. Because, but, yeah. Right. And I don't know like what controversy he has, but I bet like it's, it's the issue is like if you watch him in strange days, you're like. Man, you're great, but I don't want to know about your personal life. <laughs> yeah, that's you can hold on to that. I, I, I would right. say that would be accurate, but I don't know. Like with high crimes, just the whole like, uh, I mean, it's almost another you know history of violence kind of thing where it's like, oh, he has a past that he's been keeping from his wife, you know. And I just kind of go, I mean, this has been something that does go all the way back to the 40s of film noir and things like that where it's just like oh it turns out that everything you thought about this person you're in love with is not true how and easy is it to create a fake identity yeah it feels like people can do it all the time and i'm trying to figure something out for uh, other purposes but still it's like how, this, it's so easy i guess mm. yeah it is and i guess I, i'm maybe it's because i've seen too many movies that kind of just do that trope really it's like i mean i the twist would have had to been i don't know what the twist would have had to have been to surprise me but i just felt like even early on they're setting it up for him to i don't know just be the bad guy and (laughs) that's all there is to it really in the end there's not Mm -hmm. a whole lot of epiphanies even if there is some you know subtext here and there and he's he's gonna bring a little bit of sociological commentary on you know even if it is just Oh, the military's bad. The end. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there, but it's because I think Caviezel's miscast. Like I think he overdoes yeah. it. Like you say, I don't know about him. I never beginning. Mm. 
I, I don't know why he's never really clicked with me outside of frequency, but that's just another, like, oh, it's time travel and father-son stories, so of course I'm going to love it, <laughs> but I don't know. No, 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 I don't know. Like, I don't know. Jim Caviezel is one of those actors. I'm just like, I shrug him off. Like, I don't, yeah. he doesn't register a whole lot for me. He's not bad. It's just, he's just there. <laughs> and that's kind of what I think about high crimes. It's just, it's fine. I wouldn't say it's a complete waste of time, but there's other better examples of this, mm-hmm. probably with the name Grisham attached, you know? Right. Absolutely. A respected cop. 485 grand. Can I touch it? No, you can't. Maybe I'll just steal it. Maybe I'll just shoot you. A moment of truth. There's been a setback. It's come back very aggressively. Why don't you tell me, maybe? What about that experimental stuff? They're extremely expensive. A time to discover. What is it? Money. No, meet me at my house. Let me go. That nothing is what it seems. Sheriff, Ann Harrison's house just went up in flames. Check it out. Definitely arson. What are you doing here? I'm a homicide detective. There's dead bodies. Look at what they got on me. An eyewitness saw me outside their house the night it blew up. He looked like him. He's the chief of police. Let's get to a movie that really crackles. <laughs> you it know, is I, a crackler. Also available on Crackle. I mean, that's uh, weird. Important. Crackle. Is it really? That yeah. was weird. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. I didn't plan that. <laughs> I just assume everything's on Tubi. I bet this is on Tubi. Um, not only Big that, Tubi but film. I watched it on Tubi. If, mm. uh, of course, so curious. So this, this movie, Out of Time, has crackles favorable reviews like it's got a 3.0 average rating on letterbox you know two and a half three stars from the majority of people i don't know i think people are underrating this one a little this bit. movie fucks it fucks a lot no this too. thing it's whips. a banger it's yeah, a banger yeah, yeah we're using all the colloquials like that yeah. everybody uses to describe something that rules uh because it kind of does even if you know as i'm watching it i i sort of have the like this is kind of like a David Mamet script because it's like, it's about a long con, you know, yeah. really. And I, I'm a sucker for those, man. I love it. I love it when it's like, we're, we got to watch this guy try to weasel his way out of things. And we have to give props to Franklin and his editor in this, because there's a sequence halfway that takes place in the police station involving a fax machine. Oh. It's so good. <laughs> Crap. It might be the scene of his career. It's so good. Which is saying something, of course. Franklin is in his fucking bag, man. He is just pulling out all the stops in that scene. It's Mm -hmm. incredible. It's it's everything we've talked about with tension. It's just the part it's it's perfect it's a perfect scene yeah um all, all, and pretty much all of it up until again like we get to like the reveal of well that's yeah i kind of expected that but still just, never trust oof. dean kane no. never trust <laughs> oh i did it's a lesson kane. for life um and it's written by david collard who never really went went back to much he's not like known for mammoth-esque scripts but this really is um something that is so gripping throughout and another example of how um, Franklin morphs one movie 
into an honestly like one of the better examples since um, One False Move um, from morphing his movies into feeling like one thing and then there's something else. Uh, also love the hotel sequence. Oh. Uh, just talking about tension and how he's basically flirting with Clay and how he uses the editing to build up just everything with how he places you into the characters. The man uh, knows the, knows the place, knows a place in my heart with this movie. It's like, (laughs) it's everything I want. Denzel Washington, a gun, him running and trying to figure stuff out him in shorts. And you know, with awesome sunglasses, there's literally nothing else I want from a fucking movie. And yes, you'll have some b- bizarre twists that, you know, sure, whatever. But he's also just amazing. And I, and you know, you also have Eva Mendez, which is never bad. Um, I, 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 I adore Sana this Lathan, Never bad. It's a perfect cable watch. It's something you want on TNT at seven, at, at like three o'clock in the afternoon after you just had a really big workout mm. or whatever, whatever you're just exhausted. Whatever you do. Yeah. Um, or, or your heart's racing and you just sort of get it. Like I get it. I get a little anxiety watching this movie and that's it, good. It kind of picks you thing. right back up. Right. It kind of yeah. is like, oh, wow, that ended. That was great. I guess I, I think I'm going to go do something now. Like it, it gives you this little burst of energy, but also the smile on your face. I'm, I yeah, I I I I I'm with you, Jim. I don't understand why people aren't like, you know, that's actually one of Denzel's best movies. Um, because I I mean it's top ten I think for me, and th- that says a lot because he has amazing movies. But I I, I really just I, I, there's n- there's not like a fat there's not really fat on it. Um, you, you're pretty much stick with Denzel the entire way. I can't actually, is there like a scene where it's just, it's him or Mendez, I guess. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't know, man, this is just, I couldn't ask for something more with this kind of premise, with this, with the filmmaking at work here and the allotted runtime and the actors present. It's just like, I don't really know what else you particularly want. That's a good question. Cause I, I, I'm, I wonder if it will be like one of those things where again, in a few years or so, or maybe when this has an anniversary, there will be articles saying actually out of time is, is an amazing work from Carl Franklin and Denzel. And we should be talking about it more. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, some people just like, well, there's some contrivances or plot holes or whatever, but like, who cares? Right? Yes, Jack. Yes, Jack. Yes, fucking cares. Exactly. Oh my god! So much fun. Like, I I watched this twice in two weeks because I'm like, it's so easy to watch. Yes, it's incredibly watchable. And the question of um, what else did you want is something that I feel like on exiting that we'll ask ourselves sometimes because of like something that a movie is dinged for or like how we feel that it should have been better respected now than when it came out. And this is maybe ahead of its time, but you just don't know. You don't know a time for this if it wasn't 2003. Um, if that makes sense. But I guess, I, I don't know. It's just, it's insanely well done. Um, it, it, Denzel is so locked in. Um, 
And it's, I guess if I really had to complain, I really found the John Billingsley character irritating. <laughs> like, I, like, completely unnecessary. <laughs> it's because he reminds you of me. I understand. <laughs> um, kind of looked like someone in Portland. Doesn't matter. Um, no, I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I, it's like, I, you don't, because like, you don't, you don't think that, um, Matt is someone that is completely in need of like a sidekick or someone to like bounce off of like Denzel, like this is Denzel on, <laughs> like, this is like his fugitive. Right. And it's sure. like, you just don't like, you don't, well, you don't I just got that. a boner when you said that <laughs> Denzel's fugitive. That's like, that's what turns me on. I have to say that every time wow. before I go to bed at night. Right. right. <laughs> Well, I mean, we all have, yeah, we all have our things. We all have our fetishes. <laughs> That's we absolutely just, one of mine. <laughs> That's just, like absolutely just, one of my fetishes. <laughs> I'm going to be very open right now. It happens, you know. We, we, we all, we talked about Duke of Burgundy. There's just certain <laughs> things that we're into. And this, we've, we've, we've uncovered something major here. It's, it's breaking news here on the Director's Club mm-hmm. podcast. Um, we're going to just have to cast Denzel in a remake of the fugitive just for clay. Yeah. Oh my just God. Gotta, you don't, gotta do you don't know what you're saying when you say that. Cause you don't understand how close that is. Like, that's like the perfect movie. Know, Him in the Tommy everything. Lee Jones yeah. role or the hair. Either way, Either I'm way. happy as a clam. I know. I know. Seriously. How that's is this not happening too. today? I, I need to call. I'm going to get Hollywood on the Can you get Mr. Hollywood on the phone? I'm getting, I'm going to, I'm adding Mr. Hollywood at gmail.com and I'm going to figure some shit out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to CC me and Jim. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, John Billingsley is, uh, yeah. I guess he's there for almost like the comic relief, you know, just like it, what baffles me is like, yes, but there's <laughs> no, like who fi- find me someone who finds him funny. Like uh, I, I thought he was okay. Yeah. I can't he's, imagine anyone. I wasn't cackling, but I'm like, no. okay, he's here. Like no charm. Like no. Like I don't care about funny. Him and Denzel is a weird comedy. Yeah, it is weird. That's kind of why I like it for some reason. Like it's just not something you yeah. expect. It's like a dude I, wearing a trucker hat the whole movie, and he looks like you know. Judah. The Freelander. aesthetics are great. I sure. think. I know. I think it, aesthetically, it's a lot of fun. But that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? Friedlander like, meets Larry Fessenden. Yeah, I could see like it. It's just yeah. I mean, maybe he sticks out, but I don't mind it. I don't it's, know. Like, it's one of those things where it's like the movie is it is fun, but that's like a different kind of fun. If that makes sense, he's from <laughs> a different movie, but like it's not like he feels out of place. I don't mind anyone that that enjoys him. I'm just like he's not funny. Is yeah, that- no, I, I, and I, 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 com- I, I completely, I think the gag is the aesthetic of them together. It's like, oh, look at this guy. I see. He's yeah. with Denzel Washington. But when he actually starts talking, I think after like the second joke in a row, I'm kind of like, okay, mm. I'm, I'm okay. Right. And then there's that moment after like the fax machine sequence when like. That's my phone. Matt, right, right, right. <laughs> Wait, that's my, are, are you sure you said the right number? Um, when Matt takes him like outside to like have a, like a powwow and it, and it's like, I just don't buy that they have this kind of banter where it's like, he would take them in where he would take in, um, 
and 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 like be be open with it, right? It's like you just don't see, you just didn't see that prior to that scene. Mm. You just want Nick Nolte to be cast in everything, and we get it. I mean, look, that would that, now that's my boner. I mean, like, okay. <laughs> What's my Hey, Jack, you want to see me in a movie? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we're being we're being too on too open. Quite quite as Nick Nolte in out of time. What the fuck are you talking about? Too. Nick Nolte was here for a second. He grabbed my mic, though, which was rude, Nick. I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Recording. Sounds like McGruff the dog. I don't that might be before your time, though. You know, McGruff. That's I'm that's, pro- that's that's probably the '80s. I'm sorry, B- McGruff the crime dog. That's might I feel I'm gonna I might text my girlfriend just because she would be the person who to know that because she, her dad like had her take a bite out of crime. That's what '80s, 80s culture. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll text you right now. Don't worry. Oh my god. This is what happens when you podcast for over two hours, right? Is that where we're at? We're yeah, we're over two hours. That's yeah. Hey, this happens every film. time. Yeah, we got to fit in five movies. That's that's a good amount of time. We're so. acting as goofy as John Billingsley, you know. <laughs> that's you know that's fine by me. Yeah. Um, no, I just I I yeah like him just <laughs> after he runs out of the hotel in the staircase and is just like suddenly switches over to, to being a cop and is like telling the hotel security, go over there. It's like, uh-huh. I just, it's so good. I don't know. I mean, His use of body language at that yeah. moment too. Mm-hmm. It's that instant. Like, you can again, change it like, a dime. Yeah. Just like, uh, on a dime. it's so good. He is the greatest mm-hmm. fucking actor of all time. And um, I, in the, I, in the movie could have like backdoored itself into becoming, another cancer drama as well. And it's like with Denzel and Sana Lathan, like I would have been more into it. Like, like trying to like, think of like some sort of like, um, um, process to like help her out or something. Like, I don't like, I would have been more into them at like holding that, that drama than, than what Mm -hmm. we got with one true thing. But what we gotten out of time really, a, an underrated um, thriller that, yeah, I mean, kind of a mystery why this has been passed off for as long as it has. Um, I is guess it maybe Dean, it's is just it Dean Cain's goatee. Is that it? <laughs> their so scene, their scene in the bar was really riveting too. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's great. Do you guys, it, uh, maybe this is just me, but, and Jack, you might be the same since I know we're both fans of this comedian, but there's the John Mulaney bit of <laughs> like Dean Kane being on SVU and the idea or in the idea that John Mulaney's like, I just, I just kind of thought it would be funny if someone's like, is that Dean Kane? <laughs> <laughs> like a lineup. Is that? Is that is that is Dean Kane? Yeah, it's I fucking Dean Kane. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's so. I, that's it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That line, that line reading. Um, even with you, even you, even beca- even though he's awful, he's a horrible piece of shit that I hope steps on all the Legos until he uh, dies from annoyance. Um, it's the, that's the mo- anytime his name is brought up or when I see or like I see his face. That's the. No, I agree. what I think that. Yeah, me it's too. It's so funny to me. 
like you almost want Denzel to break out of character. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is that is that Dean Kane? Is that Dean Kane? <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Hold there's on. there's an amazing moment in uh, His Girl Friday when uh, Cary Grant just says he looks like th- uh, that that man you're looking for. He looks a lot like Ralph Bellamy, and it is Ralph Bellamy. So I, <laughs> oh, I don't know if that was like the funny. first uh, first example of like yeah, kind of being like almost like a scream like meta moment in a movie or not but that's just yeah it's just it's so random and that like the dialogue and then it's like lightning speed super fast rapid fire the entire time that you could easily like be laughing over or miss it or something but i just always thought that was great to just like throw in the middle of a such a beautiful beautifully written screwball comedy but um no i'm just i i am eagerly anticipating your spinoff podcast exit through Denzel. I mean, that's, no, that's, no. I mean, no. we gotta have a different title. We probably have to have, should have a different title, but um. mm. uh, I. It is crazy though that there isn't like a high, like a like well produced podcast that hasn't had There's a Denzel. Gotta be. I'm sure. I mean, like is. some, but like you would think some some place like the fucking Ringer or something would do it, and I'm not saying that makes it better. But it's one of those things you're just like you would think it would be one of the mainstay film podcasts. Is, oh right. yeah, the film, the podcast, uh, you know that is, you know dedicated to Denzel's Denzel um, Washington. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's for like some reason a, it, it's not there. It's like a easy. It's a it's like an easy win of a podcast. Like that's bound to just you'll have so so much to talk about, and also just like I I do love. I mean, it's why I've. I, we ultimately fell in love with um, discussing the decade. Um, that the, like we literally, this is our only decade that we have like experience and we can fully talk about. But also, it's like I like the idea of having like you only have like a set number of things. Like this is your one boundary. Um, like you can only choose things in in these ten years. Um, but similarly, it's like it's like that's the cool thing about an actor it's like you only have like so many movies and then like you can update as they make more movies right um oh sure yeah yeah no that's it's it's funny because i mean the i initially was thinking you know the the only decade i could talk about is the 90s which makes sense if we have a 20 year age difference you know it's like if (laughs) i did exit through the 1990s that would that would fit and then there was there was a podcast for a while um, called 80s All Over, where it was just like they went through all the movies in the 80s. I don't think they finished it, but it was... Yeah, I remember cool listening to idea. a bit of that, and and those two... Um, yeah, like, I, I, I think that's where I discovered Scott and Drew, who hosted that. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, like, they would... I forget, like, there were some things that I hadn't heard of that they would talk about. Um, and, like... I don't know. Like there were some things that it's like, like I waited so long for them to talk about like King of comedy. I'm like, this is like, this is like too much. <laughs> but then it's like, yeah, I do remember being like, Oh, that's, they never finished that. That's weird. Um, but, um, Oh, that's, that's, it, it happens it, it, all the time to podcast. Oh no, no. But that, but that was like, you know, teenage me. Like that was, yeah, I guess. Sure. Yeah. I like, that was like, you know, like if that happened now, it's like now hosting one, I would never, um, have that reaction. But, um, it's uh no but that like doing every single like clay could you imagine like every single 2010s like that's <laughs> yeah 
Good lord. You would no, collapse. I can't imagine, because I would die. I would <laughs> yeah. die. You would you would die and kill me, I think. Um That's t- that's too much work for anybody. Um <laughs> I don't think the twenty twelve film Bless Me Ultima will come up on your show. I mean it's possible. Mm. Uh I haven't seen it. It's Carl Franklin's last movie from twenty twelve. But uh it might be good. I, I this one I didn't catch up. I hope with. it is. Yeah, you know, sixty sixty five percent Rotten Tomatoes score, so it's probably square in the middle. But who knows? It might. You know, he he wrote the screenplay. It's based on a book. Um, it seems to be again very political, sociologically aware. Uh, and you know, it's I don't know the specific plot, but it it, it does certainly. Talk about um, Mexican American culture in the 1940s, uh, and there's the poster just has a, a big eagle eye on on it. <laughs> so maybe that has maybe there's eagles involved in some way, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I'm curious. Maybe at some point I will venture out to see what his last film was. But like a lot of great directors, you know, and I I don't I he's got to pay the bills. I understand. You know, he he yeah. moved on to TV. Yeah, Big time. which Directing I mean, like, shows. so such an example of like, just like, he just doesn't make the kind of movies that are being made now. And what is being made with what he was familiar with is in TV. Um, yeah. I mean, like he made like, what did I see earlier? Like, you know, he directed like I Am the Night, the Patty Jenkins produced show. Um, so good. My oh, was that good? Um, yeah, um, yeah. Mine Hunter is amazing. Mine Hunter. I was gonna say um, Vinyl House of Cards. So like, you know, he still has ins without tours. Like he's from AFI. Like he has um, like respect and he has like connections. But um, but no, it's it's um, he just found. Oh, I'm he, confusing. Uh, he, I'm confusing. I Am the Night with. Maybe the night or the night of. What's the one with? Uh, I am the night is the Chris Pine show. Okay, um, I'm, I'm I'm mixing it up with the night of with Riz Ahmed. Oh, right, that's yeah, that's, that of. one's also fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he but he reminds me ultimately of Ernest Dickerson. Um, sure, someone that like came from you know like a, like a, a um a below the line craftsman that came from um. Uh, film school, I believe, and then like just like chilled out in TV directing. Um, and well, I don't know if he chilled out. I think that he was too. he was probably put, like the issue if or not chilled out. I just he, you know what I mean. Just like you know. Just no, I know. I know. Okay, okay, okay. The it, the issue is he didn't he didn't want to. Yeah. Just, right, and the issue is, and you see this with so many filmmakers, if they have it, especially female and people of color, like filmmakers that have that start off kind of hot then have like one or you know and then like one more bomb or maybe even two are then like okay television for you now and we won't give you a movie ever again um it it's just it's kind of crazy how you you know whether and you know whether your opinions of these filmmakers you know are, are valid or not but like yeah ernest dickerson um carl franklin lexi alexander um uh patty jenkins for a while um, mm. like it's just these people who, and, and she was the, and she was 
the only like she was hired, but that's just because like DC forced themselves to actually like, Oh, what if we hired a woman as a filmmaker? Um, not like, and I'm not saying like she deserved the job, but I doubt she would get it if they were not like actively looking for female filmmakers. I, I, I can't see like they, that's how these directors get another chance is that like, they have to be actively like, okay, we need to be conscious of the directors we're actually hiring instead of just like, ah, I don't know anyone. Um, so I, it, it's just, it, it's a bummer to see though. Cause so many, like of so many directors have great, like made some of the great films of the nineties and early two thousands are just kind of lost on television now. I mean, even care, and you know, and, and Kusama is, is different because she still makes movies, but it's like a lot of times you're just, she just gets thrown like after destroyer. I think she was just like, okay, she, you're just like uh, TV for you for a little bit. And then you can make your movie. Yeah. And there's so many great directors. Out. Yeah. Who, kind of just throw in their towel and not because they want to. It's just like, it's too fucking hard to make a movie in Hollywood, you know, and get it produced and make sure that, you know, people get to see it and everything. Like somebody who's made stone cold classics like Joe Dante would probably Mm. be making more movies. If people gave him a chance instead of looking at, you know, his box office returns. Yeah. I was going to say like Joe Dante just failed to make a profit, like especially after Looney Tunes. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, and it's ugh. it's and a lot of those movies yeah. just gain cult followings and are right. beloved and they know his name and yet it's it's almost impossible for these filmmakers to really make the kind of movies they want to make and so that's why they resort to television so they can pay the bills mm-hmm. and I totally get that that's something that uh, you know yearly guest Keith Gordon and I have talked about it's just that's why he was directing episodes of the leftovers or, or Legion, you know, I mean, it's just, it's sad, but on one hand I'm like, well, at least they're still working, you know, Mm. at least they're still, you know, even if it is a show, you can still see why he would be hired for something like Mindhunter. Yeah. Absolutely. It it makes sense. It's, it's a fit, even if he's ultimately serving, Mm -hmm. you know, the creator of, you know, the whole thing as opposed to like it, being an auteur statement within an episode it's like, or something. It's like with a pod like this, that it's like about completionism. and like you go through a filmography and then discuss it and see how it appears to take shape when, when talking about and watching all their films. It's like, you want like, like this is like, you want like their five films in front of you. It's like, but then like TV is like, as you say, yeah, it's like, serving a, a showrunner it's like it it can feel like a carl franklin directed piece of work but it's not quite that um like it's the still a compromise yeah. of right sorts. it's a co- it is a yeah right right exactly but hey he made some great films mm-hmm. and we've talked about him here we have and the way we end the show that's the is- one true thing is that we <laughs> talked about him here Strangely enough, that particular film won't be making my top three Carl Franklin films. I think if you've listened to the conversation, it's probably obvious what that would be. Although, like I said early on, um, one and two, you can almost consider a tie. But uh, Mm -hmm. one for me is one false move. Two is devil in a blue dress. And three is out of time. But again, all three are just bangers, truly. Uh, it's basically the same ranking besides switching out Devil in a Blue Dress with, um, uh, with, uh, uh, Once Falls Move. So 
blue dress, false move, then out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the same as Clay. Yeah, he likes movies that start with the letter O. It's nice. It's oh. I, I appreciate the alliteration. Holy shit! <laughs> yeah, three, three, and three le- th- three word titles: one false move, one true thing, out of time. You can almost make a song out of it. And if you count in as you know, you can you can almost not count in if you want, but you know, double and blue dress. Uh, sure. No, that actually still doesn't work. Never mind. Cut that one out too. Um, that was stupid. I like the light. Oh, I leave everything in. I leave it all. It's just, it's just the raw audio. Radio. Uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I do want to say though, like, I'm glad he is getting like the genuine respect he deserves from peers and from like rep screenings and from the Criterion Collection because Amen. he absolutely deserves it. Because it's just a big fucking bummer that it's just like he wasn't given more chances after like paying his due diligence, like high crimes and like one true thing. It's like he, he did what he was supposed to do. None of this is his fault. Like, I mean, because like, look at the scripts he was given. So I, I, and and, like, again, one true thing is actually kind of like pretty good and out of time is great. And it's like, these films were, I mean, like the success is not, or the lack of success is not on him at all. Even with high crimes, it's like, that's the script you gave him, and he directed the shit out of it. Um, it's your fault for not either marketing it properly or giving him a better script. So at, at some point, you're just like, he just got dealt a bad hand and still came out with three great movies. So it, C- Carl, you're the best, and I o- and I'm, I, I only listening. hope the best I'm sure he's you. listening. Yeah. Absolutely. I have to believe that. Carl, if you would like to tell us your favorite films of the 2010s, or all years, and no, but uh, but yes, I I agree. Um, a, a, a very interesting career that, um, yeah, just has I think yeah the respect of of people who appreciate these kinds of directors, um, and that putting out one false move in Delmino blue dress will have more eyes on them. Um, yeah, no, I, I really, I really like that. I got to see more of his work, even though like the, the great work came so early on. Um, and he's, yeah, no, I really, I really gained a newfound respect for him, even though it's, it's one of those filmmakers you just don't think of when you think like you just don't think of steady hands quite like you do with with auteurs. And I already am anticipating the next episode that you guys will be on next year, whichever you choose. And I'm sure there are other directors. It's because you will be back. I'm, I'm determined to keep this show going, <laughs> even if it's not a consistent schedule. <laughs> And I get so tired after hey, let, a hard day at the office. Listen, but, the no. lights are on. That's all that matters. Amen. Amen. Yeah, y- you know, you'll see, you'll see what happens in, gosh, 11 or 12 years, how you're going to be like, oh, I just, I don't know. I just, I want to watch something dumb instead of having to think. And Brother, I'm at that pot- point now. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I've that's where I've been. I've just watched genre films like for the last sure. year or two. I yeah, no, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that at all. I'm probably gonna go watch the new Idris Elba airplane show after this. So it's <laughs> like I'm at where I'm at. Yeah. Isn't that in real time like that Nick of Time movie? <laughs> that's hilarious I, that you didn't say 24. You said Nick of Time. That's really funny <laughs> to me. Yeah. I don't know why. Like it, that's not a great movie, but again, trashy, dumb, fun. That I just remember going to see it and going, "Ooh, I got to keep a an eye on the clock and see how accurate this is." And like they're that's saying, really it was funny. filmed in real time. But no, I'm curious too. No, Idris Elba, hell of an actor. Yeah. So it's also perfect trashy fun, and I've heard it. it I'm sure it, it is. Heard it lives up to that um, statement. Uh, when but, new yeah. when new dad content is out, Clay's Clay's on it. Hey man, when is the when the justified reboot comes it comes into play? Oh god, you, you know yeah. where I'm gonna be. I still gotta watch Deadwood. I'm really behind on some stuff, you know. Oh, I haven't watched Deadwood. Okay, I just always heard that was great, and it's just something I never went yeah. back to. I feel like it took when, me a while. once Clay's in his Deadwood era, it's like lights out for anyone else trying to like <laughs> contact you or. <laughs> well, I. Don't ever turn the lights out on your wonderful show, Exit oh, Through the 2010s. You. Where can people find you guys if they want to stalk you? I mean, not like your addresses and social security <laughs> numbers or anything, but you know. Um, Exit Through the 2010s is on any podcast platforms uh, of your choice. And we are on Twitter at ETTPod. We are on Threads. <laughs> exiting through the 2010s um, as you, you know uh, we're in hell right now and we su- we sure are I'm, I'm like I do I really have to do this do I really can I just give up we made the leap we'll we'll see what we're just Damn we're it. I'm using it as a backup now if it, right. if it you know once it actually gets to be a usable <laughs> app and once and or and or like or if Twitter finally collapses, that's I'll make the transition. But if ne- neither of those two things happen, I'm I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, um, and our email or for the pod is exiting through the 2010s at gmail.com. Um, did you say where you can be found? Um, <laughs> Twitter uh, for for now is Jack A Draper, um, and my letterbox is the same. Everyone can follow me at Birds of Clay on Twitter and on Letterboxd and Birds of Clay 99 on threads and Instagram. I hated it the moment I said it. Um, and blue and blue sky now. I got that invite code, fellas. Oh, you know, Aaron from Hit Factory Pod pants. came through for your home for your homie and he he hit me up. So uh, I'm on blue sky, whatever the fuck that is. By the way, um, how, how are the meta bucks now that you plugged your threads and? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. It's rich, this is insane. Rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I Whatever. Don't know what's happening anymore? There's... All I have to do is I have Discord chats to for backup. If I all I need to talk is talk to is the my film friends and my basketball friends, and then I'm good. I don't need anything else. Um, but yeah, follow me on that shit. A letterbox is cool, and that hasn't I love changed. That. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, it stayed consistent. Shout out. 
Yeah, and I, be, I I become a member of the Substack cult. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. It's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, a lot of film critics I see are writing on that thing, so maybe I'll do that thing too. Because uh, I don't know why, like, Patreon's interface for me is just, I don't know, it never... There's something about it, and I just can't even specifically say why. But then I went to Substack, and I'm just like, I like this better. The end. When people, when pe- when film critics post articles or, like, essays or pieces of work on Patreon, I'm just like, no, I don't want to... Like, I use Patreon to follow up, like, a podcast that I like. Yeah. And it also, it, it does well to play audio. But when it's, like, writing, I'm just mm-hmm. like, I don't want to read this I don't know here. why. Yeah, I just don't <laughs> like to read writing on Patreon for whatever reason. No, I, I to... completely agree. I think And it's I wanted to start just... writing again for... I mean, that's kind of how I started. I was like, oh, when I was when I was in high school, I'm like, I want to be like Roger Ebert and put out a book of my reviews or something, you know. So I'm just trying to, like, exercise that muscle again. But it's yeah, it's it's fun. It's I don't know what's happening on the Internet anymore. It's all going to implode one day. And, you know, global warming is going to kill us all. And all this will be burned up into a nice fiery crisp. So but at least uh, we'll have Denzel (laughs) and Carl Franklin. Oh, I know. Thank God. And and we also have the wonderful podcasters that have been kind enough to join me on this here show. Thank you. Thank you so Jill. much, Clay and Jack. Yeah. Well, I'll be back on your show again next year, and you'll be back on my show again next year, and we'll just keep it going if we can. We'll try our best. You know, That's all we can do in this day and age. Uh, everybody, go to directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm just going to start including in the show notes, a link tree. That's another thing people do because that way you can find all the places that I'm at that way. So that's cool too. Um, I, I, I have yet to like confirm what the next episode will be. It could very well be, uh, Bill Ackerman's Jean-Luc Godard extravaganza. So I'm hoping that'll be the case. And if not, there will be something next month regardless. So oh, yeah, I should just plug stay when tuned. our next episode should be. What is this out? Do you know? <laughs> I want to put it out Monday. Oh, which fantastic. is okay. Monday the 10th. Monday the 10th. So. Then your episode of Exiting will be up by then. Woo! Where we discuss Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy. Um, but for those just hearing about us for the first time and that have made it over two and a half hours into this episode. Um, we'll be starting our double date month, which is inviting two guests back to the pod each episode to lead us into our 200th episode in which, uh, everyone will be like paired up, uh, for, for a movie of their choosing. And I only bring that up again. I only bring that up again because we will be discussing two, Eva Mendez movies uh, in that month with Place Beyond the Pines and the other guys. Oh, God. Yeah. Those are so good. <laughs> Which yes. I mean, like, very different roles, but just uh, we didn't plan for that, <laughs> certainly. Um, I, could, I could use we'll some laughs. We'll you know, I haven't watched the other guys in about five years. I could use some laughs tonight before bed. That might be yeah. what I decide to watch. Now. It's a it's a lot of fun and that'll refresh me. She's great in it, by the yeah. way. Yeah, she's great in the other guys. Yeah, definitely. I, Solid I, actress. Yeah, much like Gosling. You know, he's he's not bad too. Yeah. He's pretty good. Uh, you you, you got some you, there. you got some good acting coming or good acting good episodes coming. So we'll all look forward to that. Thanks again, guys, and thank you all for listening to this here podcast called Directors Club. 
take care, everybody, and uh, stay safe. Enjoy the summer. crackles you know i i don't uh, weird is it really